Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Simmons Leadership Conference, Wednesday, April 3rd, in person and online. A day of inspiration, skill building, and networking, featuring Trevor Noah, Gloria Steinem, and Padma Lakshmi. Inclusiveleadership.com. And the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org slash spring. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, you may know him as Hawkeye Pierce, but if you miss MASH, you certainly saw him in the West Wing, 30 Rock, even Scorsese's Oscar-winning epic, The Aviator. Alan Alda's had a career most can only dream of. Now, after decades on the silver screen, he wants to master the art of conversation. In his new podcast, he sits down with everyone from Dr. Fauci to an octopus. In a couple of minutes, we'll talk to him about life, film, and his new podcast. So he's hit a record in Massachusetts, the most amount of unemployment claims filed in one day. In a world of social distancing, some of the largest parts of our economy cannot function. No more restaurants, pot shops, even hair salons are closed. For a business that isn't part of the small sector of the economy that's deemed essential, this could be the kiss of death. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Boston Globe columnist Shirley Leung about what's happening to the local economy. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello, Jim. How are you, Marjorie? I'm very grateful to be fine. You are? So am I. I'm actually pretty excited. In about a half hour, we're going to talk to Alan Alda. <laughs> I mean, I am really, really excited. Okay. From MASH. Well, and, and, and Marriage Story. Marriage Story. And now he's got this podcast. Marriage Story. He was great. And you, who his guest today is in the podcast? Simon Garfield. From the New England Aquarium. And they're, and they're having... Uh, a relationship with an octopus, not doing the aquarium. Yes, they are. In any case, that's about 30 minutes. But first, by the most optimistic projections, we won't have a coronavirus vaccine for at least 12 to 18 months. And with no vaccine around the corner, our best protection remains social distancing. So we're opening the lines and asking you, are you ready to live this way for months rather than weeks? Have you already adapted to the new way of living or are you already tired of it? Do you worry the prolonged isolation will have a detrimental effect on society and on you? Or do you appreciate how this has forced us to be more creative about being social and about staying connected? Thank you, Zoom. 877-301-8970. I don't know if you read – I had David Paleologos from Suffolk yes, University. Yes, I saw your show last night. As always, Thank Jim. you. Who does the glo- – you're supposed to say it was very good. It was excellent. He does the uh, Globe-Suffolk poll. And I thought one of the most interesting uh, questions – was how long can you endure this? And he used the word endure, which is what I would use too. Uh, 33% of people said a few more weeks. It's only been a couple of weeks mm-hmm. Twenty so far. 24% said a few more months and 32% indefinitely. So it's 56 saying a few more months or indefinitely. Almost 90% saying they can wait at least a couple of weeks. I think my – and by the way, we don't want to depress anybody. I mean maybe – People are settling into this, but do you think they're going to feel that way in a week? Well, I don't. I, I don't know. I think people are really different, though. I think people I mean, have are, become different. No, you mean? I think people are really different. I mean, there are certain people. You know, <laughs> one of my kids' friends, you know, said, "How are you? How are your parents doing?" And you know, in this in this difficult situation, mm-hmm. he said, "My parents have been in quarantine for twenty five <laughs> years." So this is nothing different. It's a great line. <laughs> you know, so they're kind of people that keep to themselves. You kind of have these bookish types, you know, the kind of the kind of uh, 
guys that are like computer types. Maybe they could be, you know, playing video games in their room forever and a day. Then you have the extroverts. They just can't stand it. So I think it depends a lot on what kind of person you are. Well, you know, my favorite. Also, where you are. Where you are. What do you mean? Well, if you're some in cramped little apartment oh, of course. in New York yeah, City, yeah, yeah. I mean, you are going bananas, especially if you don't have a porch. But if you have a house with like an outdoor area, pretty soon it's going to get warm. You can lease it out on the porch. And this Friday, we can all go out and stand in front. I like what they're doing in some of the, some of the burbs. Mm-hmm. They're going out in the driveways every night and having cocktail hours and just yelling at their neighbors across the street. Well, you know, that uh, Friday, uh, we're going to talk to Shirley right. about this, the Clapathon, the Clapathon to celebrate our healthcare workers. And you know, one of the nice things about it, while our attention is diverted, by obviously uh, coronavirus, it allows people like President Trump to essentially eliminate fuel emission standards, <laughs> which he is doing that literally is today. Unbelievable! In the middle, we'll talk to Heather Goldson about that a little and later. And you know, you know what's really depressing about that, particularly because you, yeah, you, everything you've noticed, you've noticed that the air seems cleaner, which apparently totally it is true. because nobody's driving around yeah. anymore. I mean, China, which has terrible pollution problems, the air's gotten cleaner there. It's probably getting less clean now. They're reopening up uh, some of the some of the working uh, places, but in any case. Uh, it's just so sad because you look at the blue sky and the clean air and you think, well, you know, the president of the United States is doing everything he can to uh, hurt the climate. And it's just really disgraceful. You but know, anyway. one, one last thing before we get to the calls at 877-301-8970. I should, you know, I assume people listening, you, me, everybody has been sent memes, videos, oh nonstops by all their friends. And I have to say, it's hard to rate the funniest. The guy who imitates Trump, uh, the guy from Jersey or something, He's is like a good. genius. But the one that I got for about the 400th time this morning from somebody I showed you, it's only 14 seconds long. And I actually should have played it, but I, I didn't think to do it. So there's this guy being asked a question. He says, you have two choices about how to spend uh, the time uh, quarantined. You can A, spend the time with your wife and children, or B, at which point the guy says, B, yeah, B, I'll take I'll take B. I don't care what it is. Eight seven seven. Hell, B. I'll take it. Three zero one eighty nine seventy. One, you know, good thing that's happening. We've been fairly critical, I think, as most of America is. Well, not most of America actually. Majority of America says they approve of the job president's doing. We've been critical of his approach. Uh, Deborah Burks, Doctor Burks, in the last, I guess, twenty four hours, has said what I think virtually everybody has bought into at least in the last week or so, we need national standards about this social distancing. There needs to be uniformity among state states, as Burke said, and I think that Fauci has said, Dr. Fauci has said too, that the same curve seems to be everywhere. It's taking different, you know, it's progressing uh, uh, in some states later than some other states, but they're point is, ultimately, it's going to be virtually the same everywhere, and hopefully not as bad as New York City. And uh, so the notion is we shouldn't have state-by-state standards. We should have national standards, and that seems to be the direction that Burks and Fauci and others have been able to push uh, Donald Trump, despite, obviously, a lot of resistance. What are you looking at? In well, I'm looking at the, this great front-page story in the Globe by Christopher Muther, our buddy who's on with us, about, you know, your hairdo. I mean, people are not able to go to the hairdresser, and he's talking about people taking matters in their own hands and cutting their own cutting their own hair. But a friend of ours, Sheila, is sending us memes all the time, and one of them a few weeks ago said something like, in a few weeks, we're going to know the real hair color of 90% <laughs> of the true. women in America. So it's not just the hair color. It's the eyebrow plucking and all these things that you do. You know, the unibrow is going to be back pretty soon, Jim, because people well, you know are going to get to their... Why? I got my head shaved, my annual That's head right. shaving at Granite Telecommunications, where the guy, Rob Hale, who runs it, gives millions yep. of dollars to charity when people like the governor and Sam Kennedy and 
a whole bunch of people get their heads uh, shaved. And so, you know, it was good timing for me. In any case, let's get back to the subject at hand. How long can you do this? Have you sort of settled in? Have you changed the way you live and relate to other people? And at least according to this poll, again, the Suffolk University Globe poll that was released yesterday, uh, more than 90% of people in Massachusetts, more than not, that's essentially unanimous, support all the closings, uh, are doing social distancing. And as I said, Close to 90% of them say they can endure this. That was the word the pollster used for quite a period of time. You know, and all the manicure, pedicure places are closed. I know, you know that. You're a big fan of the, the well um, uh, pedicured feet in the summertime. I am? Know? Yes, you've talked about that before. It was like 15 years ago. Well, a women, you're talking. Oh, women. I thought you meant men. No, not We've done men. whole shows on that. Exactly. Not on this station, so of course, but other stations. This could be another one of the beauty routines that goes by the boards when you won't be able to go to get your feet pedicured. You'll either have to do it yourself, which is dicey from my experience. Never looks quite as good, or they'll be unvarnished toenails in their summer shoes to summer gym. I don't know if you're going to be able to take it. You know, I had it done once to me when we had yes. a sponsor at our old station that was a spa kind of thing, and it's not my kind of thing. Having said that, it was fabulous and huge fun. Paul from Worcester, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you too? We're good. Fine, thank you. Um, you know, Jim, while it's very stylish, the um, Zorro mask will not prevent you from getting coronavirus. <laughs> that was the one my mother made for me when I was 11. You have a good memory there, Paul. Thank you. I still cherish um, it. So I got, I got three three quick things. Do it. Um, one is uh, you just mentioned getting a haircut. I missed the window of getting a haircut, So, and I, but I've been saved, but I haven't spent that money either. Nor That's have right. I spent money on having my nor have I spent money on having my house clean. So my house is, is built, and I looked apart. Well, but, Paul, can I, uh, on a serious note in response, what a lot of people are doing paying is the because— the housekeeper, Paul. And paying the haircutter, if it's somebody oh. you ordinarily go to, at least something, because you're saving money, and as you know, they're getting croaked there. So 100%. I told them both that they will be paid in full. Great. Oh, What's number two? Um, number two is, uh, this is actually something I think I feel very um, important, is that when you're giving money to charities to make sure that it's a legit charity and you know where the money's going, because there's a lot of scam- the scammers are just coming out of the woodwork right now, mm. and they're, they're out of control. Um, so, you know, make, make sure you're doing, you know, you just play it smart, you know? Yeah, no, know who, whom you're giving the money to. I know that Pine Street Inn is looking for money. Well, there are also websites and healthcare for the homeless, too. And uh, uh, the homeless, There are webs- yeah. websites that talk about uh, charitable websites in which are legitimate. People can find that. What's your third thing, Paul? Uh, um, I have a little Alan Aldous pun fact. Yeah. Uh, from the movie Four Seasons. Remember that? Oh, sure. Yes. There was that really horrible saxophone player in the in the place in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And? He was a good friend. He was a good friend of mine. Oh, oh. really? Yeah, he, 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 said, he, said, he said it was the hardest gig he ever played because he was, he's a professional musician. He played with, he played with uh, a whole bunch of, you know, Legit bands, and uh, he said it was hard to play horrible on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. I think that was the three couples that vacationed right, together little, and yeah. stuff, and uh, they started getting in arguments and stuff like that. Yeah, that was a pretty good one, I think. Paul, thanks Paul, for your call thank as you always. Much. We appreciate it. Eight seven seven three zero. Oh, we didn't ask Paul how long he could do this. Three zero one. The question. Eighty nine. By the way, I didn't ask you how long can you do. Well, we're not. It's not fair because we're still coming to work, coming and to hopefully work. we'll continue to be able to. I like being able to come. Well, so do I. To work. Doesn't make you a little anxious. 
No, because we're, there's only about seven people in the whole building. Well, there, there are very few people. You know, by the way, if you've never been to GBH, GBH a has a lot of building. people. Well, there are two buildings. There's here two and there's buildings. part of the building across the street. Yeah. And there's everything from Masterpiece to Frontline to Nova to the world. And you're not off by many. There are literally about a dozen people. No, I walked all the way down the hall. I didn't see a single solitary person except the people across the hall at WCRB. They're mm-hmm. over there across the hall, too. Walked all the way up the stairs. and didn't see anybody until I saw... You, Jim, holding court. And, yes. if, and by the way, part of the proof is you can play classical music in a hazmat suit, which That's I didn't right. think was possible, but again. It was difficult for you to hold court, though, because there's no one to hold That's court. That's funny. <laughs> I, it's, it's not it's funny. It's funny. I actually was talking to myself, and I, actually, I got a very good audience. The only person who would listen to me is the old <laughs> saying goes, tired joke, but a good one. Susan in Framingham, hi. Hi. Um, well, I can tell you I've already done it for four months. Why? Wow. I I have asthma, and I had a very serious asthma exacerbation the beginning of of December. And one thing is, when I was hospitalized in December, they didn't have enough respiratory staff then to be able to give me the breathing treatments I needed. I was supposed to get them every four hours. I had to wait one time, six and a half, and was literally gasping. My My doctor sent me home as fast as she could because she knew that I had nebulizers at home and could use it at home. So I'm terrified for people. I'm also at high risk because I've been on prednisone ever since. So I have a compromised immune system, which is why I've been in isolation. And you get used to it. Um, Do you have any tips for people, Susan? I'm really sorry that you're forced before (laughs) the rest of us were, but do you have tips for people how to stay sane and busy and... Um, try to, you know, <laughs> the biggest thing, especially, you know, for me, once I started feeling better is try to treat things as normally as you can get up, you know, shower, get dressed. Um, if you can work from home, work from home, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then come up with things that, you know, you haven't done reading, you know, whatever. And if you can get outside, you know, even if it's just on your front porch. Yeah. Susan, I hear a dog in the background. Does the dog help? Um, okay, I shouldn't admit this. There are four of them. <laughs> oh, hold on. Too late. Hold on. So you're not really in isolation there, Susan. You've got four dogs. You've got to take them out for walks, right? I have a fenced yard. Oh, you have a fenced oh, well, yard. That's... Well, that's perfect. That's very yeah. perfect. Susan, we wish you... But dogs, I think in some instances, you know, a lot of people, Susan, would say they prefer the canine relationships to a lot of human relationships. I don't know, Susan. Susan, we wish you good health. Uh, Stay well and stay in touch. Thanks so much for your call. 877-301-8970. And we should maybe later today or tomorrow get people's tips about how they are. I mean, it is only two weeks. And if even Donald Trump admits that we have at least another month of this, which I think is a modest estimate as to how long this is going to be going on, Uh, you really do have to develop some techniques so you don't go out of your mind. Well, a lot of people are doing the video thing. Where they're Zoom. Having, is yeah, Zoom. They're is... doing the Zoom thing, although there have been a few bad incidents with Zoom where people have been hacking Zoom with pornography. You know, you knew that was going to happen. It, you know, it, it wasn't going to take long. The white supremacy, the swastikas, and the pornography stuff apparently is infiltrating uh, Zoom. Uh, Tom from Cambridge. Hi, Tom. Hello, Tom. Oh, hi. And th- first of all, thank you for keeping uh, up the work. Uh, you're a great comfort and uh, source of information so nice every day. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yep. 
Well, for, first of all, yeah, I can do this for a while longer. What choice do we have if, if, unless we want to uh, wreck the economy and, and our public health altogether? I've been reading a lot about the history of disease, which uh, is very sobering, of course, but at least it gives a better understanding of what we're going through. And for that, I would recommend one book called Plagues and Peoples. So uh, you can mention that if you want. Well, um, you just did. Well, at Plagues and Peoples, it's probably a really upbeat kind of uh, selection. What did you learn? Can you distill it into a sentence or two for us? Not that people shouldn't read the Two quick, th- quick things. One is that there will be major unintended, con- unanticipated consequences. And second of all, the effects could be around with us for a long, long time, yeah. even up to a century, although we wouldn't have to stay indoors for a century. But uh, I wanted to uh, salute a group of... Uh, under-acknowledged uh, people who are working now, and that's the sign language interpreters yeah. who are always by the side of the public figures, and that's an at-risk post, and so hats off to them. Uh, hey, the last thing I'd oh, good. Go ahead, Tom. just keep hammering away at Donald Trump. He's the one who politicizes ever since he used the word hoax. So keep up the good work, and Tom, thank you. thank you, and thanks for uh, your recommendations. One of the governors— You can read on- the editorial in the Globe today. It totally trashes him. And says he's not the right leader for this time. You know, uh, there is one of the governors, each of the governors who we see either on CNN or on local television stations, whether it's Raimondo or uh, Baker and others, uh, Cuomo, use sign language people. But one of them has the sign language person in another room and they're in a box on the screen. And I can't remember which of them. I know know it's not Baker because the and by the way, the person that. Uh, Governor Baker uses is at least six feet away. So there is social distancing. But one of them has gone another step and obviously hears the stuff simultaneously and um, uh, uh, but is in a box and coming from another room rather than from there. Eli in Rhode Island, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hey, thanks. Um, I was just speaking about uh, consequences for a century. My son is a little yet less than a year and a half old and um, So he can't go out and play with uh, little children anymore. Um, So he's, you know, isolated to his two parents. And um, really, he's losing that social interaction that a lot of small children need. That's also a really good point because he can explain maybe to a uh, five-year-old what's going on, even if he or she doesn't quite get it. You can't explain. That's a really good – so what are you doing? Or the teenagers. I mean kids that are 15, 16, and 17. But at least they intellectually understand even if they're – I mean if there's ever a time where you hate your parents and you want to get away from them, it's when you're 15, 16, and 17, (laughs) So, Eli, what are you doing with a one-year-old to keep him as socialized as one can under the circumstances? Um, You know, we take any chance we can to get outside, um, take walks, and, you know, even just – kind of social distancing and staying near our neighbors and talking and trying to interact, you know, afar as much as we can. Eli, good luck with your uh, kid. We appreciate it. You know, we're going to talk to Shirley Leung out of a piece one of her colleagues wrote, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember what his name was, who wrote about talking to a lot of futurists about oh, yeah. how we're going to be changed. And again, we'll save it for Shirley. She's in the noon hour, I think. But my favorite thing, uh, I think is that in one of the futurist explanations of what's going to happen and how it's going to affect younger people, uh, they say, I hadn't heard this before, that some young people are referring to this coronavirus right now as a boomer remover, which (laughs) – 
Is, <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing, but both of oh, us that's are. Us. That's a pretty good we line, removed, isn't it? Jim. A boomer remover. I hope we're not, but you never know. We're talking about six feet of separation, asking you if you're ready for the long haul of social distancing and how you're coping. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about settling into the reality that this is going to be a long haul of social distancing. And we're asking you, are you ready for it? Have you psychologically prepared to live this way for at least the foreseeable future and beyond? As I said, close to 90% in the Suffolk Globe poll say they can. You know, one other thing before we get back to the calls, we had a couple of people ask this questions yesterday that we couldn't answer. So maybe this could be called our I'm no expert segment because we say that nonstop. And one of the people, I think it was Charlotte, who called from the North Shore talking about what happens with college kids. And let me tell you, uh, Arjun took a look at this, our colleague. It is true the stimulus is not good news, does not provide direct relief for anyone who is a kid, meaning 16 or under, or can be claimed as a dependent by someone that group could include college students, high school students, some elderly people who claimed as dependents by people in their households. So that is um, – that is uh, you were right, Charlotte, when you uh, called. But if you have questions, a lot of which we are not able to ask, but we are surely uh, able to ask our colleagues to find out for you, feel free. But right now the question we are asking you is how long can you endure? It's been only two weeks, and for some people it feels like two years. Where do you want to go, Marjorie? Lori in Chestnut Hill. Thank you for calling, Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi. First of all, we all know that they say it takes 21 days to make something a habit or to make it seem um, like a regular thing. And I feel like a lot of us started this way more than 14 days ago. So it's just kind of kind of I'm used to people not being out on the streets, and I, I feel like this is how it's actually Lori, I'm going to put you on hold for a second. We're going to Only because the connection's breaking up, we can't hear you. Don't go away. We're going to put you on hold. We'll take another call and hope that we have better connection in about... 30 seconds. Bless you, Marjorie. Myra Norton, you are next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Myra. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I've been, I could stay this way for a long, long time. Why? And the, the reason for that is I've been through a lot of tragedy in my life, real mm. serious tragi- tragedy, which makes you feel isolated to begin with. Yeah. And through that, I've learned to stay in the moment, hmm. and so I don't worry about tomorrow, and I can't really dwell on what has happened in the past. So that's my recommendation. Um, also, um, yesterday we did a Zoom conference with uh, about seven people from my old neighborhood, hmm. and it was like everybody was in the room together. It was wonderful. You know, by the way, and, but yeah. let me let me first of all, I think your advice is great advice. Easier. I mean, I'm sorry you've suffered tragedy and that got you to that point. But I think it's useful advice. What Zoom has done as a socializing thing for people. I love and you, your voice totally changed, Myra, when you were describing that from what you had said earlier. It was joy in it. And it it is great to see everybody on your screen when you're isolated. Is it not particularly, as you say, from the old neighborhood? How great is that? 
Yeah, and um, we're going to do it every Sunday now at 3 o'clock because everybody had such a great time. It was just terrific. I love that. Myra, thanks for your advice and thanks for sharing that uh, story. We really appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Laura in Manchester by the sea. Hey, Laura. Hi, good morning, and thanks for having me. Thanks for calling. I've been... Uh, quarantined with my dog Dash and what I do each morning is I read like motivational stuff that kind of gets me in a a great place with great mindset and then I list off five or six goals that I need to get through throughout the day and they could be as um, as innocuous as you know cleaning the light fixtures to something a little bit more um, productive but every time I check that off it kind of um, gives me a sense of accomplishment, and I, I I keep a positive attitude. So that's been able to help me. What's a more significant one than cleaning whatever you said the light? That give us one example if you can, Laura. What's on the the richer? Uh, well, at this point, it's looking for a job. <laughs> it's what? It's looking for a job. Oh, oh well, that's at that's this a big point, one. It's looking for a job. Yeah, it is a big one, and yeah. it's it's pretty sobering out there. But I'm trying to keep my head about me. In fact, if you guys are looking for a personal assistant, I'd love to work for you. <laughs> Laura, did you lose your job because of the coronavirus? I did not, but it just so happened to coincide with the um, the uh, the recommendation to work at home and, yeah. and that type of thing. So the timing of it was was good in that I didn't have to have to um, be saddened by saying goodbye to colleagues that I've known for a long time. But also, it's um, you know it just kind of wiped me out of the scene. <laughs> You sound like a pretty level-headed soul, Laura. We wish you luck in the job search, and thanks for the tip. I think it's a great idea, too, even in normal times, which this is about as far away from as possible. I find, I mean, you're, can I say, you're about the most disorganized person on the planet. Can I say that? I am disorganized. I don't mean that critically. I mean, you, you are. Is I that am. You are. I have a lot of problems. Can I say it again? You are the most disorganized person disorganized. on the planet. <laughs> Thank you. And I am almost anally Organized. Would you agree organized. with that? I would say that's accurate. Right. Yes. I have lists and Your I check lists. things off. And as Laura suggested, again, these are normal. It's very satisfying for me to have accomplished mm-hmm. even small things because you have this. It's a positive reinforcement yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. And this is a time, to, I think, cleaning your house. I mean, it's spring oh, cleaning time huge. anyway. I think a lot of people, especially if they're home and they're not working, I mean, it's a time to clear the junk out of your stuff, out of your house. Do you like a Marie Kondo kind of thing? I feel like I've swallowed Marie Kondo. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I am so Marie Kondoed up or whatever the really? verb is. That I am, you, I am I throwing you... out so much crap. It is well, just. Well, you're a hoarder, it, aren't you, Jim? I'm not, a, you know, you, just because I criticize your organizational skills, I am not a hoarder. I do save a few more things than I maybe should. Yeah. I'm you assuming. like five boxes out by the coffee machine now no, but, for about seven years. Well, that's fine, but it, we don't have to get into that. It's a personal thing, but that's fine. <laughs> I, what I've come to the Big realization, boxes, dur- okay, fine, boxes. during coronavirus, what I have learned, and I think I deserve a little bit of praise for this, which uh-huh. obviously won't come from you, <laughs> that it is unlikely that somebody will be interested in opening like a Jim Browdy library. Because I, <laughs> when I looked at all the stuff I'd saved this weekend, it appeared the only useful purpose would be if someone decided there should be such a library, like in Cambridge. The papers of Jim Browdy. I, ha- I have. I was quoted in a story in like the Newton tab <laughs> In 1922, and I have three true? copies I of that. I wrote a legendary column about you, Jim. Let me tell you something. Uh, by the way, you know, I'm going to read that. I'm going to bring that in tomorrow because I found you wrote the most condescending, 
We didn't know. She says we knew each other. We didn't. During this yes, ballot did. question with I the late Barbara you. Anderson and I. I made a big impression on in you, nineteen ninety. remember me. She wrote a totally disrespectful <laughs> column, which I still, obviously, I've still not gotten over. What is it, 30, 20, 30 years later? That's a long time ago. Dave and Dedham, you're next on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie Egan and me, Jim Browdy. Hey. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, listen, I could do this for a little while longer. I'm lucky. I'm being paid. You know, we're not being asked to do a lot for work. Uh, I'm a school teacher, so we're, we're doing stuff, but there's only so much we can do. So, personally, I think I could do it a little while longer. I don't think societally we can do it forever. And I think we need to start talking about what, like the guy you had on yesterday, what is it? That, what's the plan? How are we going to get out of this? We're not going to just turn it on one day. Uh, Trump's trying to say that he's doing it very clumsily and obviously and brutishly, but he's right in that we have to figure out a way to come out. We're going to have to take a chance. You know, how, how safe do we have to be? Uh, you know, that, that line about how many people die from the flu every year is still true, but we don't close down society for the flu. Um, we have things we could do about it, but we don't shut it down every year. So we need to decide as a society, as a country, what is safe? What, what are we willing to accept? Now, uh, me personally, I, I like the guy yesterday you had on. David Katz, uh, a doctor who used to be Yale. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. He, he makes sense. They, they need to find out how many people have the disease. They need to take 10,000, 20,000. I'm not a statistician, so I don't know. And just test a segment of the population just to see how many people actually have it. But, Dave, can I interrupt you, Dave, if I may? And you can continue in a second because your call, I think, is exactly right on almost every word. The key to finding out how many people have it is testing. And as I'm sure you've read or heard in the last 24 hours in a conference call with the governors, the president of the United States incredibly said, I haven't heard about testing being a problem. I think he said for a while or something, which is so thoroughly disingenuous and and contrary to what your point is and what is needed. So we're swimming in one direction and he's not just clumsy with language, but he's swimming in the exact opposite direction. But go ahead, Dave. To be, to, to be fair, just on that, you know, it, it was a lot bigger problem. I mean, how much testing we're doing compared to what we did even two weeks ago is a, is a large number. Compared to the United States, obviously, it's not. And it's going to exponentially go up here in the next few weeks when they get that home test. You know, all that stuff will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they need to take, like, 20,000 tests. I know they're just testing basically people who are showing to be sick or, or health care workers. So you got to, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. And some people are going to go to people's homes and just say this block in this part of the country, this block in another part of the country. They could figure it out. There's a lot of smart get people who could do that. And well, then how many people are sick? Where, 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 where is it safe to go back into the water? Well, no place yet. Maybe it is. No place yet. I mean, no, but Dave great, has said great, when we reach that yeah, point. But there's a great piece that addresses all Dave, of this thanks for on a the great front call. page of the Globe today. Mark Arsenal and Naomi Martin talking about this. these uh, people out at the University of Washington that are forecasting um, some of those exact same mm-hmm. things. And they're saying that if we have social distancing through May and, and we are really serious about it and everybody does it, that it's possible that like by the first – by the beginning of June, there will be fewer than 100 cases a day. And, and just you know, this whole thing about the comparison with the flu, the problem with the comparison with the flu is not really the numbers the seasonal die. flu. Yes. It's that the seasonal flu is spread out. Mm-hmm. Over a the curve season. is flattened. As yes. We've learned. So the big deal, as everybody knows, now with this is that you can't overwhelm the hospitals, and as we've been hearing endlessly, the hospitals in New York City are pretty overwhelmed. So w- when you get when that curve starts to flatten, and you have fewer people getting 
uh, sick and the fewer people getting new cases and the hospitals are not overwhelmed, that's when you begin begin to think how we uh, begin to m- normalize this. I mean, I don't think we're going to be running out to restaurants and and, uh, and bar rooms anytime soon because you're so close to people, but there'll be some sort of letting up on this. And this piece talks about uh, that curve flattening, presuming we keep up these serious social distancing in June. But the point that Dave's making and that Donald Trump, to use word Dave's word, I think, is making much more clumsily is probably why Burks and Fauci were able to convince Trump that we need a national guideline, not a state-by-state guideline, because the only way we get to the point that Dave and David Katz yesterday and even the president have been talking about, the only way we get to that point within a finite period of time is if we do this social distancing, stay-at-home thing in a really serious way. Well, they mentioned it has changed now because Tennessee has finally gotten with the program. But they had this great story a couple of days ago about how there was this street dividing the two states, Virginia and Tennessee. And on one side, Virginia was all shut down. And the other side, Tennessee was still open for business. Literally the same street. Was it Bristol? Was it called Bristol? I don't remember the name of the town. Yeah. Uh, the street, but but it was one state versus another state, and um, and it, it, Liberty uh, University, where Jerry Falwell's, he reopened. Uh, he reopened. You know what happened? All the kids got sick. Not all, <laughs> not kids, all, but but significant numbers of the kids got sick. Of those parents are happy. Luke in New Hampshire, <laughs> you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Luke. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so thanks for taking my call. I've been trying to get the word out. I'm a truck driver. I deliver uh, food to grocery stores yep. uh, in Mass and New Hampshire. And uh, so I, I want to just want to ask people, please, if you can, if you can sew, please make a mask or if you have a mask, wear it. Because down in the grocery stores, the employees are starting to get sick. And mm-hmm. on top of that, they're, they're actively not letting employees wear masks. They're sending them home if they wear one. So what? The, the, yes. And yes, what correct. is the rationale for that, Luke? Uh, they don't want to scare the customers that are in the store. That is demented. You know, I think the thinking has also changed on masks now, where there's more recommendation of people who are non-symptomatic. Fauci has said in the last 24 years, uh, uh, hours that everybody should wear yeah. them. It's a totally different. Yeah, so Luke, that's maybe an Luke, un- the, disturbing the story. Employers Good will luck get to you. The program if Fauci is saying that everybody should be uh, should be uh, wearing masks. That is horrible. That is horrible and dangerous. Yeah. I should say. Okay, so we. How are... about what this guy's doing, delivering groceries too? I mean, you forget Luke, who just called. You forget. I mean, it's just it's really. There are a lot of people putting themselves in danger so the rest of us can eat and stay healthy. Okay, coming up, we, this is a real treat. Uh, we have our naturalist, Simon Montgomery. It plays Matchmaker, introducing Rudy the Octopus to the <laughs> actor and popular podcaster, podcaster that is, Alan Alda. Alan Alda is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we're being urged by every public health official and elected officials from City Hall to the halls of Congress to social distance and, for heaven's sake, to not shake anyone's hand. But actor Alan Alda was spotted shaking eight of them when he visited the New England Aquarium. 
It was there that our friend Simon Montgomery introduced him to Rudy the Octopus. You can catch that exchange, plus an in-depth conversation that Alan Alda has with Cy on his podcast Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda. The episode's out today. You can find it on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you go for podcasts. The award-winning actor and podcast host joins us online. Alan Alda is a thrill to meet you. Thanks for calling in. Hi, thank you. That's so, uh, you made me laugh when you talked about I didn't know what you were heading for. <laughs> well, well, I, it, I didn't shake all eight hands. Well, <laughs> close enough. You don't need to be technical. <laughs> well, she's one of our favorite guests, Alan Alder. We have her on all the time for Afternoon Zoo. We absolutely adore Simon Montgomery. And, and she talked about her um, her very intimate relationship with this other octopus. But it seemed to me, from what I saw from your podcast and the, and the visuals that went along with it, I, I saw a pretty intimate little moment for you as well. I think Rudy the octopus really likes me. She's trying to pull me into the tank with her. I think, I think so too. And you had a wonderful observation. I think Jim wanted to well, actually, talk about that. Speaking of uh, Alan Alda pulling in the tank with you, Simon Montgomery, who crosses every line one can cross, was describing, I guess you would call it an octopus hookup to you. Here it is. For many years, I hope they still do it. Seattle Aquarium has the octopus blind date. And they introduce a male and a female. And they let children watch this. Well, honest to God, I went one year. My husband, he's such a saint, you know, on Valentine's Day, where is your wife? Watching octopus have sex across the country. But um, children are sitting there. I mean, they don't understand human sex, as if I do either. But they're seeing this, and they're just completely confused. Um, and they have had instances in which it did not work out in the worst way. But the one that I saw, actually, it was a, a mating that was very gentle and, and very sensuous and very lovely. And when they were done, they lay wrapped in each other's arms and they turned white, which is the color of a relaxed octopus. And one person said, well, they're having a cigarette now. So did you learn anything, <laughs> Alan Alda? I, th- I think I think I need to grow a few more arms. Everything great. <laughs> it was great, and congratulations on a, on a great podcast. But you know, you, wait, you... well, I'm going to leave the sex thing. Okay. We didn't have the sound from when Sai <laughs> explains to Alan Alda the male sperm. You're asking her something about how they mate. I guess is the proper term, and she says they take the sperm packet. Uh, the male takes its sperm packet out of its head. And stuffs it, these are the words according to Sai, with his hand into her nostril. What'd you make of that, Alan Alda? I, I, I don't, I, it may be sort of human centric, but I think I like the way we do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think so too. So, Alan Alda, I was going to say um, congratulations on this, on this uh, podcast that's been going on, what, six or seven years now? It's a while now, right? Yeah, we've been doing it for two years. There are 70 or 90, I can't remember how many, episodes where we've talked to the most amazing people. I mean, Sai is a perfect example of how wonderful the guests are. And we've also talked to Tom Hanks and Paul McCartney. And and always there's always an angle in every conversation about relating to other people and communicating. And it, it's it's interesting. This is a time... When we the way we communicate with one another has been changed so radically. I mean, we're on the phone instead of face to face, and families are doing the same. And 
our communication and our relating skills are being tested in a way we didn't expect. So it's, I guess these conversations are even more timely than they were before. Well, you had a conversation with someone who's probably become the most uh, relied upon communicator in America right now, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. Uh, tell us about... Two New York City boys talking. Yeah, his communication <laughs> skills. Yeah, he was wonderful. He he uh, he made uh, time for us, and it was March fifth, and I and I was careful to mention that we were recording it on March fifth, because I knew things would change within days, and they have. I mean, when we talked, social distancing was more a, a concept than a reality, and now it's a reality for most of America, much of the world. You know, and he was wonderful. He was he was very, um, very clear. As as is the as the like the title of the of the podcast, he was really clear and vivid about the way he described how you get infected, what you can do to avoid it, and what we need to do to mobilize against it. He's such. A, he's really a terrific communicator. What's the genesis? Uh, I mean, the word communication, I know, comes up a lot when you're asked to describe uh, what inspired clear and vivid. But what was there a, a tipping point? Was there a specific thing that caused you, Alan Alda, to say, this is what I am best able to do at this stage of my life? Yeah, that's, there was. And it was when I was doing the science program that came out of Boston. Um, it's called Scientific American Frontiers on public television. And I'm, I interviewed hundreds of scientists on that for 11 years. And early on, I realized that what we were doing that made the interviews so accessible to the public was they weren't straight interviews. I didn't come in with a list of questions. I came in with a desire to understand what they were telling me. And I wouldn't, I was relentless. I'd grab them by the lapels and say, tell me another way. I don't get it. And their focus changed as a result of that. And I realized that we were communicating in a way that I had been trained to communicate as an actor and as an improviser, where you relate to the other person. And that relating, we, have, we all have the equipment and the ability to do it, to watch one another's faces, to take nonverbal cues from one another. But we don't, we don't practice it enough. We're not used to it. So I decided to try to help scientists learn to do that so they wouldn't need somebody like me pulling the relatedness out of them, that they could, could relate to their audiences, to other doctors, to other scientists and researchers, to policymakers, to funders, to relate to them so that what they have to say sinks in and sticks. So I helped start what's now called the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And we've trained, in the past 10 years, we've trained fifteen or 16,000 scientists. You know, Alan Alder, you're quoted, there's a wonderful piece about you and your podcast in uh, the Washington Post, I think just a few days ago. And your quote, which I thought was quite powerful, and I'm, I hope I get this verbatim, but at least it's quite close, you're not really listening unless you're willing to be changed. And as I'm reading that, 
I'm saying to myself, if anyone is ever swimming upstream in a particular time, it's you. Because I'm trying to think, you know, other than an Ant- Anthony Fauci, who has convinced most of us that they are willing to be changed, we're in an era where no one is willing to change, particularly the most powerful person in America, n- no matter what he or she hears. Would you not yeah. agree? Well, well the, th- the thing about that, the willingness to be changed, it, for me, represents real listening. And I know it's a radical thing to say because nobody goes into a conversation with somebody who believes radically different things, wanting to believe what they believe. But that's not the point. The point is, are you willing to be changed? If the if the person, if you really hear what the person's saying, and the way in which you're changed may not be to agree with them. It probably won't be to agree with them, but it will be to hear them. Mm-hmm. And and you establish a commonality that may lead somewhere, but you have to kind of be interested in listening better for that for that insight that I think I have for that insight to have any value. You have to want to listen better in the first place. And I, and I agree with you. Most of us have divided ourselves into camps, um, can, you know, uh, cohorts of belief. And we're not listening to one another. We, in fact, we we uh, before we even start the conversation we, with somebody we judge to be on the other side, we've already condemned them to wrongness. So it's not good. You have to you have to want to communicate a little better to to, to make any progress. I think. We're talking with actor Alan Alda, and the podcast is clear and vivid with Alan Alda. You know, Jim just mentioned, Alan, a recent piece about you in the Washington Post. I read a much older uh, profile of you from the New York Times, the headline of which was, A Nice Guy Finishes First. And it talks about your kind of, although you played some villains, but that your image, uh, you know, being concerned, considerate guy, nice guy, squeaky clean guy. He always asks how you feel kind of guy. And this was from the, the 80s, I believe. So I'm just you did the, a podcast about uh, the Me Too uh, yeah. movement, and I wonder what you were communicating in that one about how to be a man in this particular moment. I was interviewing um, a woman who uh, who'd written a book uh, about modern man and how what makes a modern man. Um, be a be a good person with 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 the, the new way of looking at things that is only new to some men. It's not new to a lot most women and and some other men. That how people have to treat one another with more respect. So the idea was to see what she had learned from writing her book, which was conversations with seventy five men many of whom said, look, I think I'm a good guy, but um, what do I have to do to be to be better? And uh, it, was, it was interesting, some of the reactions that she reported, where it seemed to some, some guys that it was a lot of trouble to go to. And, and that's where it seems to me that Empathy plays a really important part in relating to other people. Because if you only think about the trouble you're going through and you don't think about the trouble it is to the other person to be even slightly disrespected 
over and over again, it, it, you're not going to get anywhere. The, 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 the relations between the two sexes are, are going to are going to have a little abrasive quality until there's a little more effort put into that, it seems to me. And the payoff is great. Well, I'll tell you, I know a guy who could use an empathy transplant. So if you ever hear one, <laughs> could you give us a buzz? Yeah. Alan, do you live in Manhattan? I do when there's not a, a, an epidemic. Oh, so uh, how nervous? Well, uh, it sounds like you're living in another house right now. How nervous are your fellow Manhattanites, the people you hang out with in normal times, about being in the epicenter of this whole thing? I I haven't spoken to anybody about their feelings about being in Manhattan per se. I think everybody that I know is taking precautions, and some of us are taking extreme precautions. I talked with one friend who goes to the market, but when he comes home, he washes his clothes and takes a shower, Mm. doesn't just wash his hands. Wow. Wow. But how do you wash your overcoat? That's what I (laughs) first thought I yeah, it just spray down all the food, it spray down the bags, it spray down everything. You right, know, right. Um, Alan Alda, you just had a wonderful performance in, in Marriage Story, which you know was a very highly acclaimed movie. You played Adam Driver's divorce lawyer, and it was a, it was a great. Uh, I loved it because you know he goes to the killer divorce lawyer the first time around, who basically <laughs> wants to you know make make the wife's life as miserable as possible. Then he goes uh, to you. I think you have portrayed the. Divorce lawyer, everybody who's getting divorced that doesn't want to crucify their partner should go to. Tell people about your character. Well, he, he's a very principled guy and wants everybody to deal with the divorce rationally and isn't, intend, isn't intending to go after the other, to the, the partner's uh, finances in a rough way and that kind of thing. So that part of it is probably what everybody wants in a divorce lawyer. The, the slightly cynical attitude of the movie is when you look at the office the guy is operating from, you can see he's not very successful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But isn't the movie in part about your whole thing with Clear and Vivid, how to communicate and how... What breakdowns happen when you don't communicate? Well, that's that's an observation, I think, that I had after we finished the movie and I saw it. It seemed to me here was a couple that was divorcing because they'd had a breakdown in communication. And then they find out during the divorce they have to communicate far better than they ever did during the marriage or their lives will be permanently badly affected by that. And that's that's the funny thing about about any two people who try to spend a life together. You you, you really, if you don't solve the problems day to day, you're going to eventually have to solve them, and it's harder to solve them when you're splitting up. Yeah. You know, Alan, last thing from from me. I have Marjorie and I were talking about how excited we were to talk to you today. We've both been big fans, like all of America forever. We love your podcast. But I have to say, you reached a new level with me. When I'm reading this this Washington Post piece, and I hope this was not an aberrational moment, uh, the writer mentioned that you ordered Brussels sprouts. And uh, I live for Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Are you in the same category, or this was just an... 
and a moment no, I, for you. I really like Brussels sprouts. And what do you think that is? What is that? that what's I don't the... know. I like Brussels sprouts and octopuses. Do you like both of them? <laughs> I think it's octopi, my friend, I believe. No, actually it isn't. It's is octopuses. That, is that true? Yeah. I did not know ask, that. Ask, ask a sign next time she's on. Fair enough. I, uh, no, you won't get fired for saying octopi, but I think the scientists all call them octopuses. You know, Alan Alda, I have to say it's been uh, for both of us a pleasure, and uh, we wish you good health and fabulous work, and people should check out your podcast. It's nothing short of terrific. So thanks for spending so time nice. with us. Hey, it was really fun talking it. with you. We Thank enjoyed you it too, very much. Obviously. It, 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 not only did we enjoy your work, but the podcast is fantastic. Alan Alda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Actor Alan Alda is the host of the podcast Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda. Today's episode features our friend, the naturalist and writer, Sign Montgomery. The two of them visit New England Aquarium to meet up with Rudy the octopus. And while the aquarium is temporarily closed because of coronavirus restrictions, check out everything that's going uh, on there online, including virtual visits. And by all means, check out Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda and today with Sign Montgomery. If you want to check out those visits, go to NEAQ dot org slash visit coming up the two trillion dollar stimulus package has forgotten about an essential workforce the undocumented immigrant the boston globe shirley young joins us for that and more next on boston public radio 89.7 wgbh Ahead on Boston Public Radio, it's known that plastic isn't the most environmentally friendly thing to package our food and drinks in, but we were always told that at least it's recyclable. Well, a new investigation by Frontline has determined that might not be as true as we thought. Truth is, the plastic Coke bottle you have or the package from your favorite band of the hummus may live longer on Earth than your dog or cat. And the kicker, oil and gas companies have known about it all along. In a new Frontline documentary called Plastic Wars, journalist Laura Sullivan explores this dark truth. In a couple of minutes, she talks to us about it. So the world may have paused, but there's still an election going on. Without campaign rallies, town halls, and in-person meet and greets, Joe Biden's campaign has been forced to go virtual. But for a candidate whose brand is built on forging close bonds with voters, can Biden's campaign survive the era of the coronavirus? We'll talk to CNN's John King about that and the latest in Washington next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGPH. Hello again, Jim. Why were you laughing, Marjorie? Uh, I, I wasn't laughing. I was just thinking we're hour number two, and uh, somebody kind of famous, Chris Cuomo, CNN anchor, younger brother of the governor of New York, is now apparently tested uh, positive for coronavirus, but he says he's feeling fine. I don't know if he's been he's been diagnosed. It's not. I just was reading a few stories. NPR mentioned this too in the national news that he's oh, quarantined. We're not sure if he's been in tested. His base, but I'm not sure. But yeah. Andrew Cuomo in his daily press briefing just brought this up and says of his brother, he's going to be fine, but you don't really know Chris. You know him in his job. He's combative, but he's actually a kind, beautiful person. He is my best friend. Oh. There's actually been some really good back and forth between the two of them on uh, yeah. Cuomo's Fighting show. Fighting about whether too. their mother Matilda like, preferred I, I one of 
the other. I, like I love that, that one. In any case, the coronavirus broke curfew all the time. Outbreak has brought our economy to, well, you know this, to a full stop. It's reshuffled. We're an essential workforce is putting both doctors and grocery store workers on the front lines of this pandemic and leaving the most vulnerable laborers with zero economic protections. I'm talking about undocumented immigrants. Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young has been writing about it all. She joins us in the line to talk about all the ways this has shaken our local economy. Shirley, good to talk to you. Hi. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Hi. Yeah, we can. Yes, Fine. We, can, we can hear you. We can hear right. you really well. Um, well, Shirley, you did do a great uh, piece on this with Brian McQuarrie. What is the status of people who are here that are undocumented? Um, you know, it is really um, horrible for them. Uh, if you think about it, you know, we just passed this, Congress just passed this $2 trillion stimulus plan. Uh, economic rescue package and basically not a, they they won't see it they won't see a penny of it they won't get a penny of it because they don't have a social security number um, and even though they may be working some of them paying taxes through uh, a various through a particular form um, they won't qualify for unemployment benefits uh, and they won't qualify they won't be able to receive a stimulus check and uh, what makes this a, a worst case scenario for undocumented immigrants is that they uh, are really the backbone of the hardest hit industries of restaurants, hospitality uh, and retail. So they are hit the hardest, yet they will they, they stand to get very, very little help. Well, you know, also, the, the while there have been assurances from what I understand, I can't remember who we were talking with about this the other day. That uh, if they were to seek uh, testing, for example, which allegedly is available to everybody in this country free, not just people who are citizens, they have been assured that uh, they won't run afoul of this uh, Trump-expanded public charge rule. But every doctor with whom I've spoken says that his or her patients who are undocumented, despite the assurances, uh, are – Worried, and some of them not seeking care or testing that they need because they don't trust the government to honor their commitment on this. And and and, and we're hearing the same thing that I mean, even though like I just spoke about you know ca- money, right? But in terms of healthcare, if if um, you're right, if they show up uh, at a hospital an ER, they think they're symptomatic. They will. They are able to get a test. Uh, you know, if they qualify, I mean, it's not about whether you can pay. It's not about whether you have insurance. Um, you'll, you know, an undocumented member will get um, tested, will get treatment. They don't have to worry about that. But it is so ingrained uh, in the, in these immigrant communities that they seek government help. They risk deportation, and and I think that's that's undoubtedly exasperated under the Trump administration. You know, Shirley Lang, I was surprised in, in, in your story to see that one woman who does housekeeping said she lost all 20 of her clients. And I guess if you're out of work yourself, uh, maybe you can't swing the, the fee for the housekeepers. But if you're working, geez, it seems to me you can swing paying the housekeepers during this time because a lot of them are uh, well, you don't, a lot. I think a lot of people don't even know if their housekeepers are documented or undocumented. But but we do know that they're not getting paid. Yeah, I was just stunned by that. It yeah. seems a little cheap, yeah. doesn't it? it? It does, and I'm hoping that people will continue to pay uh, their cleaners. I mean, there, there's a whole 
uh, I guess, a layer of the economy where, um, uh, you know, people have to make decisions like that because of the physical distancing rules, your cleaner might not, probably shouldn't be coming into your home anymore. Um, Your babysitter shouldn't be coming, but how do you help them to make sure that they don't, um, uh, they don't fall on financial hardship because of these physical distancing rules. I, I mean, so it is, it's going to be hard for the people who uh, have been formally laid off, and then it will be hard for the people who, who just aren't getting paid. We're talking to Shirley Leon, business columnist for the Boston Globe. There's sort of a good story, I guess, is that retailers and their landlords – in most cases, are trying to accommodate each other. Before you describe what's going on in that front, my favorite part of that story in the Boston Globe was that the Cheesecake Factory at all of its locations across the country has just decided unilaterally yeah. to stop making paying, paying rent. Who wouldn't love to be have the power to say to your landlord, by the way, I don't think I'm paying rent in April. So putting aside the arrogance of Cheesecake Factory, there does seem to be a sort of a collaborative spirit, even though a lot of small landlords are in as much trouble as small businesses and retailers are, correct? Yes. And um, I think this is this is a, a one silver lining that, you know, the rent is due tomorrow. And usually a rent is, is one of your biggest expenses. And it's good to know that uh, some the big landlords in town realize this, this is unprecedented situation for a lot of their small business tenants and that they're going to, you know, defer. I mean, I don't think they're waiving uh, April rent. They're deferring the rent uh, when they have income, when restaurants and retailers have income again. Um, I think that's really great. And, and for this, I, I'm hoping that for the landlords, I mean, they often they have banks, bankers, they, they also pay someone else or they have investors, they have banks. And so hopefully the banks will also uh, be more forgiving and deferring of, you know, payments that they may owe. And so um, I think it's, it, it, I mean, the other point that I think my colleagues, uh, Tim Logan and Janelle Nanos yeah. point out is that, um, that the, the tenants have some leverage here. I mean, I mean, if if they if if the landlords kick the tenants out, who are they going to find to to come in and take that space? So, um, so well, I the court, but surely the courts a, are closed too, so they have a little more leverage right, 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 than they ordinarily right, exactly. would have. Right, right, exactly. So everything is is in uh, slow motion now, and so uh, I think it's good that. Um, and, and, I mean, this is. And, and now, you know, with each passing day, there's a realization that uh, it, it's unlikely these restaurants and stores will open in any time in April. Um, I mean, we're looking to May now uh, at the earliest. And, and who knows in three weeks from now if, if May will be even a possibility. So that's another month without income. You know, Shirley Young, in that same story by Tim Logan and Janelle Nanos, it mentioned that, that uh, some of these uh, people were going to be able to defer their, their rent at least for a while. But one of these big, uh, I don't know how big a landlord, but it's the owner of GTI Properties, who apparently owns a lot of uh, uh, buildings in the South End, he went to his bank. He wouldn't reveal who the bank is, which is too bad because we could all trash the bank. But he went to his bank, a large national lender, the story says, to ask if he could uh, defer principal payments and just cover the interest on his mortgage for a few months. Now, big banks, and I would this, this is a f- large national lender, we might assume that this 
National Lender would be, be among the big banks, perhaps, that was bailed out last time around? Yeah, but I wouldn't. Yeah, that's fine. But I wouldn't suggest names because there's not just one big bank. Well, there isn't town. a name. So it's I, not. I know. So I thought I you were about to. I can't name okay, it. Okay, fine. I can't good, name it. There good. is no name. But I thought that was really outrageous. And I guess I'm wondering, um, I, I, there's no, you know, a big bank, a big national lender can't defer for a couple of months during this crisis. They got, they're loaded, aren't they? I mean, some of them are. And, and the thing is that there is a lot of public pressure. There's political pressure and, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, uh, pressure in the media uh, to, to, to for everyone to kind of um, be flexible during this time of, of a national emergency. And so I, I'm hoping that people will I'm hoping that companies will do the right thing, especially banks, which got a huge bailout last time in 2000 from taxpayers. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Shirley, there's one other piece in that uh, uh, Logan and Nano story about retailers and landlords is somebody, I can't remember who it is, maybe it was the Central Square Business Association yes. or somebody. Central Square Business Improvement District. Okay, or, or, uh, Cambridge, obviously, is suggesting that there be some thought given in the legislature to property tax relief being granted to those landlords who are willing to defer or forgive Rent The problem, and by the way, I think it's a wonderful idea, is as Elizabeth Warren, when she joined us yesterday, told us, uh, Massachusetts is $3 billion short, likely, as a result of this situation, depending on how it goes on. So I'm assuming that that's an idea the legislature and governor would find attractive. They wouldn't find attractive the fact that there's no way to pay for it, which is further evidence that, as Andrew Cuomo has said powerfully almost every day, there needs to be a second stimulus for, among others, states that are going to have huge, huge deficits when this is over. And a state like Massachusetts, which has to balance its budget according to the state constitution, it can't have a debt like the United States government does, is going to have to make grotesque cuts or have a huge tax increase at a time when people can least afford it, you know? I, I mean, almost certainly there will be another stimulus. And... Uh, it's going to have to address issues like the st- the state and and I mean there was some money given to states in the, in the last one that was passed some but not enough uh, and I mean it all goes back to trying to help small businesses get back on their feet I mean one of the things that's being talked about is um, uh, you know health insurance like small businesses pay, you know, they're employers, so they pay into the health insurance system. They're not going to be able to pay their premiums. And so when, when they, when individuals and small businesses stop paying premiums, but yet the healthcare system has to keep going, right? Someone has to pay the doctors and, and pay for the ventilators and, and keep treatment and vaccines. Um, Someone, and, and, that's the health insurer, but they they rely on small businesses to pay their premiums, and so the next bailout almost certainly will will need to address that. Like, how do you how how do you help uh, the insurers, and how do you help the hospitals, and by extension the state? Because a lot of the states pick up states will end up picking up a lot of this cost as well. These hospital bills, and so um, how how will people be made whole that way, or how businesses and companies and organizations how, how will that gap be filled? And so there's a lot more on that front. I mean, we're we're going to have to get more comfortable in the government printing more money to help us out of this hole. 
You know, I should have mentioned this before when we were talking about the plight of undocumented workers who not, are not going to get any money through this uh, trillion-dollar bill that you mentioned in your piece, Shirley, and people can look it up on, on the Boston Globe, the young L-E-U-N-G, but you mentioned Mass Undock Fund and Restaurant Strong Fund. Those are two uh, efforts to help raise money for people that are that are out of work. So, By the way, let me just say, I want to say again, I, I cannot cast more admiration to those who are doing those funds. The only thing people have to be really careful really about the right one. is no no no. That too is there's it's a drop in the bucket. It is it yep. is not to it is yeah. they all yeah. deserve a huge praise for these private yeah. charitable fundraising raising efforts. The only entity which can come close to filling the hole that has been created in people's lives in the economy are federal and state governments, particularly the federal government. Yeah. So don't be lulled into a sense of false security because there are a lot of wonderful people raising money. It's a limited amount right. of money through no fault of their right. own. There's just so much money to right. raise. I mean, just to give you a sense, the Restaurant Strong Fund, I mean, while it's not, you know, it doesn't say it's for, you know, it's for restaurant workers and yeah. there are a lot Great. of undocumented workers in the in the community. But just to give you a sense, I think they've raised, like, their goals. I think they've raised like $450,000 already, which is incredible, right? And they are giving a thousand dollars, a flat thousand mm-hmm. dollar fee to each to, to you know to to applicants. And uh, I mean, they have more applicants, but they've they've given out I think 300. They've given a thousand dollars each to 350 workers. I mean, they've worked faster than the government, right? In stimulus, but that's 350 workers. We had. You know, I, I think, you know, 100, almost 150,000 jobless claims last week in Massachusetts. So it is just a tiny portion of the people that need to be helped. And, and so, um, but, but yeah, I, 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 with, with, with regards to undocumented workers, which, I mean, there could be tens of thousands of them who are been laid off, at least, I'm thinking. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 almost the federal government won't do anything. So it's almost it's all, the state has to get creative. The state has to figure this out because ultimately, if they fall, if if they if they fall through the system, the state will the state will probably end up paying paying for it somehow, right? I mean, they'll yeah. be paying for the cost of it somehow. So, By the way, we don't know how many uh, you say how many undocumented workers are out of work, but we do know the most right. credible counts suggest there are close to a quarter of a million of undocumented people in the state. And my guess is, considering the jobs that they are able to get, that a large group of them, a large percentage of them, are having trouble feeding their families. We're talking to uh, yes. Shirley uh, Leon. So Shirley, uh, Scott Kirstner wrote a fascinating piece talking to futurists and science fiction writers in the Globe, uh, not in the Globe, he wrote the piece in the Globe, uh, about how coronavirus would reshape everyday life. One of my favorite thing is that he pointed out is people are going to think twice about putting your, their lunch in the office refrigerator going forward. If that wasn't a teeming hotbed of bacteria before, people are going to really think about it now. But what were some of the other things that people said that you found interesting? Well, um, well and people talk about this is that, um, you know, working from home, right? You're yep. gonna, you know, I, I think the longer this goes on, people will be like, oh, you know, working from home, like, uh, we people, it's 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 a pretty good, uh, you know, it's it's, it's pro- productivity has not gone down, 
and uh, and people and work. Some employees really like working from home, and so maybe this is something we should do more of. Um, I mean, I don't know if he, uh, you know the other topic related to that is telemedicine, right? Yep. Uh, right now, a lot of uh, you know if if you're not COVID, uh, if you're if you're if you're not having if if it's all all those unre- un, unrelated to COVID nineteen treatment. Uh, those patients are being asked to do their um, their checkups or appointments with their doctors by telemedicine, if possible. And I and we're fine. And I think a lot of people realize, hey, I I think this this can work in some circumstances. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, there's. I, I think it's gonna. I, I've been working on this other story about restaurants, the future of restaurants in Boston, and a, some of the things that the science fiction and writers and futurists talked about are are some of the things that restaurant owners think will happen in the next few months. I mean, it's going to change the way we think of restaurants, the way we gather, um, you know, people who are uh, have compromised immune systems, they might not be going out to restaurants in two or three months. No. Uh, they might be not going out for the rest of the year. You might not see these multi-generational gatherings of uh, grandma and grandpa with you know, grandkids anymore out, out, right. You, you, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I don't think it's really sunk in, but it is really going to change the way we live um, and work and, and not all for the bad either. It, it'll just be different. Well, a lot of it's for the bad. There's a lot of dystopian stuff in there that I'll spare. Uh, oh, people can read. Tell us about no, it. but you know, but well, I'll give you something. that's not the dystopian. I mean, how many hours have we spent on the radio talking about, uh, uh, carpooling and mass transit. One of the people, futurists, that oh, yeah. uh, occurs in their interviews suggests, and I think this makes a lot of sense, people are going to be really wary of carpooling. They're going to be really wary of mass transportation and probably take back to the, the exact opposite of what we've been trying to encourage, going back to single occupancy cars, driving to work by themselves, making our most clogged in the country highways even more clogged. So, that, I mean, beyond the dystopian stuff that's really scary, there's the more practical stuff, which is a variation on what you mentioned. My favorite line I mentioned in the 11 o'clock hour, there's this science fiction author, and I can't pronounce her first name. Her last name is Brown, and her first name is S-E-A-B-Y. And she wrote in to your colleague the following, now it is the young people who are getting hit the hardest. This is the future uh, she's writing about. Since the virus mutated to be more aggressive in those young people who had viewed the virus simply as the boomer remover and ignored the social distancing directives. And this brown person goes on to say, like the 1918 flu, the second wave is the really deadly one. And apparently, I didn't know this, hit young people more than the first wave did. Having said that, I, you know, thinking about the future and the changes, as you say, some for the good, some not, that are clearly going to come from this. I'll mention one other thing I, I, I learned from, which I think was underplayed, frankly, in the reporting on this. In the poll that uh, David Paleologos from Suffolk did for The Globe that ran yesterday or the day before or whatever, uh, one of his questions is about fear. And uh, the number of people who said this was the scariest thing they had ever experienced in their whole life, the number of people who said they had experienced extreme fear, even if it wasn't the scariest, there are going to be a lot. Of, you know who told us this when we talked to uh, Dr. Galea, Sandra Galea, the dean of BU School of Public Health, maybe a week or two ago, whenever he was on, 
the the mental health issues oh, they're going to survive huge. long after coronavirus is gone is going to be a huge challenge for this uh, country that I hope people who have the skills that we don't have are uh, readying themselves for. But it is it is going to be a change. It's a change world already, and it's going to be a real change world when we come out of this. We're talking to Shirley Leung from the uh, Boston Globe. Well, let's talk about something fun. What's that? What's going on on Friday? Oh, Shirley this is Leung. fun. Oh, yes. So um, maybe, uh, maybe your listeners have seen this, but um, uh, last Friday, New York City, uh, you know, this popped up my Facebook feeds where uh, you know, people are shooting videos of the skyline of, of New York City, City, and you hear all this clapping coming out of the windows and balconies. And there's this movement around the globe, uh, you know, uh, called Clap Because We Care. And um, and so on Friday night in Boston, it's, it's coming to Boston Friday at 7 o'clock. Very, everybody can participate, um, you know, whether you live in Beacon Hill or Berkshires, just stand outside your house or open up the window and clap for five minutes. As I write, clap as if J.D. Martinez just hit a home <laughs> run in Fenway Park. And that's exactly what it sounds like when you watch the videos, um, whether it's in Madrid or Milan or, um, you know, Istanbul, like People are clapping for healthcare workers, and and you know initially start with healthcare workers, but now we're clapping for everybody on the front lines, everybody who is risking uh, exposure to COVID nineteen, so the rest of us can stay home and stay healthy. It's the delivery workers, it's the grocery store workers, it's the pharmacists, it's um, truck drivers, it's postal workers. Clap for everybody who is out on the front lines to keep uh, the rest of us safe. You know, I'm not exactly a communitarian kind of guy, as Marjorie would attest to. I love this. Every group yeah. thing, I think the first time we saw it were the people singing on the balconies in Italy. Right, yeah, in Italy. Uh, then we saw yep. it in Spain, and now some of it's in New York City and some of it. I, I think this idea, and you interviewed the guy who's behind it, and my apologies, I don't have your piece yeah. right in front of me. Uh, but it is just... Uh, Cor- Corey Dinopoulos, yeah. Corey. And the hashtag <laughs> yep. is, I'm looking for it. Do you have the hashtag with you there? Uh, uh, I think it's... It's clap because we care, right? That is what yes, it is. Hashtag it. clap because we care. Yeah, now, it's great. Surely, I mean, we have to have a little strategy here. I'm debating. I know we all have to keep social distance. But, I mean, do we want to just be in our own little side street? Do we want to get down to a bigger street where we can socially distance and kind of feel a, kind of a little bit of a group dynamic? I mean, should I walk down to Beacon Street? I think that's what I should no, do. No, clap on your own street, and then they'll clap side next door. It's not very fun to be clapping. Well, but, but, like, well, the thing is, like, hopefully, well, you know, the ones in New York works because, you know, the people are in their apartment building. Yeah. But hopefully uh, the word will get out. I mean, Corey put up a Facebook, um, a, a, you know, something on Facebook and it's spreading. And then, you know, I've heard from someone in Cambridge. She's been trying to get um, her neighbors to do this to, to I think seven o'clock is like the change of shifts. And so Corey's idea was that wouldn't it be great if Friday night, seven o'clock during the pandemic, Everyone across America did this, not That's just great. in Boston. I think New York might be doing it again. Um, you know, whether it's Miami, Atlanta, I think Portland, Oregon, Oregon's been doing it. And, and people have not only been clapping and whooping, but also banging on pots and pans. Um, and so um, as I wrote in my piece, this started 
um, in, in, in Wuhan, China, I think one night, um, you know, people, you know, have been isolated and, you know, the, the virus hit Wuhan first and people started from their balconies and windows starting to scream, Jayo, Jayo. And that's a very common phrase in, um, in Mandarin where people, people scream that at sporting events. You know, you heard it during the Beijing Olympics, which is, you know, it, it literally means add oil or, or you know, kind of keep, keep it up, keep it up. You're, you're cheering on your team. And so, uh, so it started in Wuhan in January with Jayo, and then it's gone to, you know, Italy singing. And, and then we Bostonians also were singing last week, right? Uh, we, we had all those great videos of people doing their rendition of uh, COVID-19 Sweet Carolina. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and then, um, and now, and now this, which I think is great, because it, it's, it's a way, even though we're socially isolated, it's a way for us to all express uh, you know, uh, kind of an, an outpouring of support, but also an act of gratitude at a time when a lot of people are really scared and and, um, and and you do feel very isolated. You do at times feel like you and your it's, it's just you and your family and we're in this alone, but it's, it's a nice moment. It'll be a nice moment Friday and I hope everybody participates. So at seven o'clock Friday, the hashtag is clap because we care. And to borrow a phrase from uh, somebody in Washington, we hope that people will do it very strongly. Uh, uh, Shirley Young, thank you very much uh, for your writing and your call. Yeah, Thanks thank so much. You. Hang Thanks. in there, Shirley. Be safe and be healthy. You yeah. too. Stay healthy, everybody. Stay healthy. Okay. Boston Bye. Globe Business Columnist Shirley Young is a WGBH contributor. She joins us every week. Shirley Young, it's great to talk to you. Coming up, could recycling actually be making our plastics problems worse? Well, it kind of looks that way. It's the subject of a new Frontline documentary. The conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie. Again, file this next thing in the as if we don't have enough to worry about department. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is an island of discarded plastic. It's now, I think, triple the size of France. It's estimated to weigh about 88,000 tons. As of 2019, our global plastic waste weighed in at 275 million tons. And if you think recycling is at least one way you can do your part to cut down on this waste, as Marjorie and I both thought, a new frontline and NPR investigation finds it's probably not. The world is flooded with plastic garbage. In this state, none of this is recyclable. Have efforts to solve the plastic problem made it worse? Do you think the industry used recycling to sell more plastic? Absolutely. Frontline and NPR investigate the battle over plastics. We have to manage the waste, right? We have to fix this. And what's at stake? For the oil and gas industry, plastic is their lifeline. This is a big war. That's the trailer to Plastic Wars, which you can catch tonight on GBH2 at 10 o'clock or online at Frontline.org. We're joined by Laura Sullivan, who's the Frontline and NPR News investigative uh, correspondent who's responsible for it. Laura, brilliant work, and it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for calling in. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Laura, thank you for joining us. As Jim just said, you know, I'm sitting home last night trying not to catch coronavirus, and then i got to tell you, I was really really cheered up by watching about the plastic thing. I felt like we are going to hell in a handbasket. We've, like, ruined the whole planet. But anyway, you know, I think a lot of us do feel like we're doing our little teeny tiny part by, you know, recycling, dragging the blue bins out every week to the sidewalk. And after 
watching your great reporting, I feel like I've been totally scammed. I have, haven't I? I think in some ways this has been uh, something that has absolutely helped the oil and plastic industry in, in ways that people could not have foreseen at the time when everybody got behind recycling. Um, you know, we, I, I think we all started into this project the same way, believing, you know, China had shut its doors, was no longer taking America's plastic waste. What does this mean? Um, taking a look at, at what this was going to mean. And what we ended up finding out was just this, that this sort of fundamental idea that the vast majority of plastic um, in the past 40 years of recycling has never been recycled. Less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. And this is a, a very strange concept, I think, for most Americans, even for me, to sort of wrap my brain around because I thought we could recycle plastic. I've been putting recycling in blue bins, sorting my trash, yes. trying to figure out, flipping containers over, looking for the symbols on the bottom. And what we started doing was looking into the the oil industry and the plastic industry going back to the 90s and asking where did this all start and what that's where we sort of began peeling back the layers of this onion and beginning to understand that recycling plastic uh, was unlikely the oil industry knew that recycling plastic was unlikely to be economically viable on a large scale dating back to the 70s. These are some of these documents that we went in search of from this industry. And they really showed that the industry was aware of this problem all along. And through some of the insiders that we found, we ended up finding three top uh, officials from the industry in the 90s who said that getting the public to embrace recycling plastic and promoting it and selling it through a series of ads, through projects, through school recycling contests and benches outside of Safeway and things like that, um, getting the public to support this idea that you could recycle plastic even though they knew that it was unlikely to be viable was a way to sell more plastic. Well, one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Laura Sullivan, but one of the things I think I learned, and we're going to play the sound of the uh, the blueberry incident where you have this David Alloway from the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality explaining how certain plastics will appear to be recyclable because, as you say, you, you turn over the, 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 the blueberry bin or the tub and you look at the little triangle and you think it's recyclable. And then here's what uh, Mr. Alloway said about this. So let's take a look at these blueberries. Okay. This is plastic. And if you turn this over, you see the chasing arrows. On the bottom, it says 100% recyclable. There is no program in Oregon that wants this in the curbside mix, but more than half of all people that live in the Portland area believe this belongs in the curbside container. Well, it says it's recyclable. It says it's recyclable. It has the recycling logo. It's very confusing to a lot of people. And two of the confused people are right here, That's right. me and you. That's right. So so what happens is when I put that recycling bin in my, that little container in my blue bin, it does not get recycled. It just sits and yeah. becomes so part of this here's mass. here's the reality of recycling right now in the United States. The number ones and twos, a couple of them, not even all of the ones and twos, but basically your soda bottles and your milk jugs, those do have a market in the United States. The vast majority of all the other plastic is not getting recycled. Strawberry containers, yogurt cups, clamshells, packaging, Amazon envelopes, uh, I mean, every, none of this stuff has a market. So that means it's either getting landfilled, burned, or winding up in the oceans. So... Anything that has a three through a seven on it at this point might as well have a giant X through it. And the whole idea 
and one of the things we found in our investigation, that we're all flipping over these containers in the first place, was something that was manufactured by largely the oil and plastic industry in the, in the late 1980s when they quietly lobbied almost 40 states to put the symbol with, inside the chasing arrows triangle on the bottom of all plastic. Now, some environmentalists at the time said that they wanted some numbers on it, too, because they wanted to be able to sort out some of this plastic. But all the recyclers that we talked to at that time said all of a sudden they became inundated with, with plastic trash from people in their communities, putting all kinds of things in their tubs. And all they really wanted were the soda bottles and milk jugs, these sort of original, heavy, durable plastics that could be transformed into other things. But instead, they got a wash in all of this other kind of plastic trash. Now, we didn't know this for 20 years because China stepped in and said, we'll take all of your plastic trash. And we started sending all of these bales. You would put it in the blue bins. You put all kinds of things in the blue bins, or maybe you're just, you know, throwing all kinds of stuff in there and, in, you know, that you think is recyclable because you flipped it over and you saw the chasing arrow sign on the bottom. And the, China would accept these giant bales, and they would sort through them, largely for the good bits too, the ones and twos, the soda bottles and milk jugs and maybe a couple other things. And after that, nobody really knows what happened to all that plastic, whether they were burning it, burying it, Maybe it was going into the oceans. There's very little um, information about what was actually happening to that plastic. But inside the U.S., recyclers were counting it as a checked box, like, yes, this plastic has been recycled. And then China shut its doors two years ago, and now the, the mask has come off. The curtain's been pulled back. And the reality is there is no market for any of these other plastics. But that's not what the oil and plastic industry has told us all these years. You know, to provide a little depressing context to this incredibly depressing story of yours, Laura, isn't the statistic... <laughs> Poor Laura, make her feel bad I don't know. It's a fabulous <laughs> yeah. film. And no, you should... I, I understand. I do. It, uh, didn't, isn't the statistic you quote in your film from the UN that by, I think it's by 2050, we'll have more plastic in the ocean than fish? Did I get, did I get that oh, right? That is correct. By, it is estimated by 2050 there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish by weight. Okay, so I was curious to know what what inspired you to to do this. I, you open your film with a video that I'm guessing virtually every single person in our audience has either seen or heard that horrible video, heartbreaking video of that sea turtle with the plastic straw. Was that was that? I mean, and it's being removed from the. I don't know if it's called a nose or a nostril, whatever a sea turtle has. Was that what inspired you? How'd you get this thing started? What were you trying you to know, do? For me, it was really this, this the news that I was reading about China's no longer taking the plastic trash and therefore we have to burn it all. I, 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 this just blew my mind because I thought, no, 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 no. I have been told since I was a child that if I put recycling plastic into somewhere, if I do something with my plastic, it's going to be turned into something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and that that's just a given. And that may be true in some cases for soda bottles, but the, for the vast majority of plastic, it's not true. And in a lot of cases, even for soda bottles, it turns out it's not really true. They get downcycled once. You know, I think it's somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of soda bottles actually get recycled. And of those, they become something else, you know, once. And then those get thrown away. But once you turn it into that next thing, it can't be recycled again. Plastic degrades every time you recycle it. So, I, But this, what was fundamentally crazy to me was that I grew up, you know, yeah. like most people. Yes. You know, I mean, 
kindergartners recycle, adults recycle. There are more people in this country that recycle than vote in the United States. I mean, this is a part of our culture. This is a way we were raised. And I couldn't understand why did I believe foundationally that the vast majority of plastic could be turned into something else and was being turned into something else when that wasn't true. And how did I not know that this wasn't true? And a lot of it was because that is what we were told. We looked at a series of ads that the plastic industry put together in the 90s to sell the idea of recycling, but also sell the benefits of plastic. As one of the top former officials that we talked to for this story said, this wasn't an accident. He said they knew that they did not have a good recycling story. Their own documents show that they knew that the vast majority of plastic was not economically going to be able to be recycled. Well, by the way, this is not just... They went forward with this ad campaign promoting plastic and then selling the public on the idea of recycling through all these feel-good projects. Just just one thing. Before we get to the long-term thing and, you know, down the road and the the plastics industry, for the numbers three to seven, the ones that aren't soda bottles and milk chairs, are you better off just in short term just putting that in the trash? They should go in your trash. Most trash. Of the okay. We talked to said put, put it, it in, in the trash because if you put it in a recycling bin, all you're doing is making recycling more yeah, expensive worse. for the two items that we actually want. Okay. We're talking to Laura Sullivan, who's the woman behind the new Frontline NPR documentary airs tonight on Channel 2 at 10 o'clock. It's called Plastic Wars. If I were you, don't take this personally, I would not invite her to a cocktail party, but that's your, <laughs> that's, that's for you to decide. Here's, you know, for those who think this whole strategy on the part of the plastics industry is, and we'll discuss their future, as Marjorie said in a minute, as per your film, this is not just an historical, you don't use the word scam, but I will, perpetrated by them. Here's an interview you did with a woman from Colgate's Palmolive who's marketing a new supposedly, quote, echo-friendly toothpaste tube. Here's the conversation with Laura and this woman. So if, if you put this in your curbside tonight, do you think that this tube would be recycled? Uh, we need more work. We're working with other organizations to get the word out. So a not lot of, yet. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. I noticed that you guys put the big chasing arrows. Correct. Do you think that because it's not quite recyclable yet that that might be a little misleading? We don't think that we're being misleading because technically it is recyclable. That is great. That, that is just perfect. Okay. So explain um, the, the method to the madness here. Uh, the whole role of the plastics industry in fostering this this lie. Yeah. So what we what we ended up, I think, and and one thing you I think you hear in this clip is this sort of nuance that the plastic industry has historically been able to yeah. hang onto that it is technically recyclable. You know, anybody can take this toothpaste tub or this thing and put it into a take it into a lab or take it into a facility melt it down and turn it into something else you absolutely can do that but the question has always been whether it makes economic sense or financial sense to do this you got to pay a garbage truck to come out your house to pick it up you got to pay for somebody to sort it out at a facility you got to pay for somebody to melt it down and turn it into the new thing and at the end of the day Oil and gas, which is what plastic is made out of, is cheap, and it's just often easier, cheaper, or both to just start with new plastic. So there's this fundamental foundational problem with plastic, and this is what you find in these documents that we went back to from the 70s and 80s and 90s in the plastics industry that sort of show that this this incredible awareness of the difficulties of recycling 
you know, this stuff. And in in one case, one of these documents said that it was unlikely to be, you know, econo- ever be economically viable. I mean, they were well aware of the problems with this. And yet, what you found is that in the 1990s, they were, they were facing this incredible public pressure, much like you see today, where there was just too much plastic trash. People were like, this is ridiculous. I'm awash in trash, and I'm just throwing it all into the, into the garbage, and it's going into the landfill. I don't know if a lot of people remember the Mobro you know, garbage barge mm-hmm. that was yes. running around the East Coast, couldn't find a home. It was very much in the front of people's awareness of, of what was happening, was this amount of trash, and that plastic was, you know, adding to this, to this, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And it was right at that time that the plastic industry had its lowest favorability ratings. People were really turning against it, and they were starting to say, we need to ban plastic. And across the country, just like today, there were these, we should ban bags, we should ban this plastic, we should, you know, these bottles shouldn't be made out of plastic. And what the industry did and what their documents show is that they made a concerted effort to go into those communities, places like Minnesota and, and up in New York, and say, we're going to start a recycling program for you. Don't worry. Don't worry about all this plastic. You can recycle it. We're going to start a recycling program, and, and it all works. And then what the insiders told us is that they were able to avert all of these bans and head off all of this legislation by promoting recycling. Promoting recycling became a one official told us promoting recycling was a way to sell more plastic. And you know, they're still doing it and building ever more plastic plants. Yes, plastic production is expected to triple by 2050. Um, in interviews, the industry says that they acknowledge that the vast majority of plastic has not been recycled in the past. But they said that they are now, because there's a huge public outcry again about plastic, they have. They said again that they are now believe that they will make recycling work this time. They say this time they really mean it. That they are going to put 1.5 billion dollars into new recycling projects and trash management projects around the world. And they really mean it when they say they don't want all this waste in the environment. We sat down with an official from Chevron Phillips, which just opened a new $6 billion cracker down in South Texas to make new plastic. And they said that they want to see all of the plastic that they make recycled. And that is the industry's new, uh, this is what the industry told us as well. They want to see 100% of the plastic that they make recycled. But the problem is that if you recycle 100% of the plastic that's out there, you don't need as much new plastic. So Correct. you're going to have fewer, your, your profits are going to be down. So, you, so the question that I had for Chevron Phillips and the industry is, how can the industry embrace a solution? And I think this is the question going back to the 1980s and 90s, that at the end of the day is going to have you make less money. And they said that, that they feel so strongly about having so much plastic in the environment that they are willing to make less money and that that's, that we should believe that. And they also said all the restaurants in America are going to open tomorrow, so we should get prepared <laughs> for that. You know, Laura Sullivan, you mentioned that China closed. We all know this story from 2018. But it isn't like other countries didn't agree to keep taking a lot of this crap. You go, It's Indonesia where you went, correct? Yes. We can, you des- oh. can you describe – first of all, you are one courageous soul, you I should sure say. You sure are. Uh, but, <laughs> Knocking I mean, on these the doors. Door, you got to watch this tonight and watch Laura's reporting tonight. Uh, can you describe – it's almost impossible without a visual. Describe what you saw in those fields there in Indonesia. Yes. So I think if there was ever a question I had coming into the story of 
where does this end up when I put this into what I what, when I think I'm recycling something? Where does it end up? Um, it, it was this moment of, of ending up in a field in Indonesia and seeing the um, American products. It was like I was standing in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm in an American grocery store now. I'm looking at bottles. I'm looking at the mozzarella cheese wrapper. I'm looking at the yogurt container. It was all American plastic. It said, you know, packaged in New Jersey. One was, one was, one water bottle was packaged in Hawaii. I mean, I just, <laughs> and, and I thought, how did we get to this poor communities, you know, very, you know, very poor community. Kids are playing in and out of this, you know, into this field, and this is where America's plastic trash ended up. Um, we followed because China shut its doors. A number of countries, like Indonesia, have opened up um, a little bit to taking some of the recycling trash. They are also looking for the soda bottles and milk jugs, and they're willing in some countries to take a giant you know, bunch of the trash in order to sort, pick through it, to, to take, to find those bits. But then the rest of it, they're stuck with. And so they end up, they don't have the kind of landfill systems that we have in the United States. So they put it into fields and they end up burning it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, environmental problems, health problems that, yeah. that happen when there's a reason why we don't burn what, plastic. That was one of the big things. People, when you burned it, the kids, a lot of people got sick. Yeah, and then they play in these fields, and people were getting sick. And, and so then in that one community, they shut that field down, and then another one popped up. And we found a former worker who worked at one of the sort of quote-unquote recycling plants in Indonesia that were, you know, were, t- were taking some of the good stuff and then, you know, making new fibers out of it, but then uh, dumping the, and the rest of it. And, and this worker said that they were dumping it several times a week at one point into different communities just getting rid of it because it costs them money to dump it that's the there's this sort of foundational economic problem with recycling plastic when gas is so cheap i mean even in indonesia it costs money to get rid of the the plastic that nobody wants yeah. you know the clamshells the salad boxes nobody wants that it's too lightweight you can't do anything with it it has very little value and and you could technically do something with it, but economically, even in Indonesia, where you know they're sort of you know trying to to manage all this, all the the best thing for them to do to make a profit is to dump it because otherwise it cuts into their profit to manage it reasonably. And so this worker said that they um, that large portions of these bales that they come in just end up in the community, and that's what I saw when I went through that field that night in Indonesia. I mean, it was. It's heartbreaking, really. So, Laura Sullivan, we're going to get to the 275 million ton question in one second. But before we do, for those who are feeling like fools, like Marjorie and I did, both of us, when we watched this documentary, uh, it's not just people who are not experts. You interview the head of Greenpeace. And there's the wonderful video that I think we've all seen photographs through the years of when the Greenpeace activists mounted that barge of trash or whatever the hell it was. And what did the big banner that they unfurled say? Next time, try recycling. Right. So they were fooled as badly as we were, correct? There are a lot of people who feel now that the environmental movement was co-opted by the plastic and oil industry to get on board with their message. Now, recycling is a good thing. I mean, and and, and at the time, metals were are are the, the even with the market's low. Steel, aluminum, tuna paper, cans, these, these, tuna can, all of these things. I How mean, about paper? 
So, yeah, paper, cardboard. Cardboard is a, is a big market. I mean, the, all the prices are kind of, I mean, the world is upside down right now, but all the prices are a little bit um, off kilter. But these markets have held strong for 50 years. I mean, these are, these are long-time recyclables. There is, there is steel in your soup can that has been recycled for decades. Good. Okay. And this is just going around and around. This is what you want to see in some of these recycling markets. Plastic is very challenging because you can really only recycle it once and then you have to downcycle it to something else. You can't use it over and over again. And so, but the environmental movement embrace recycling as it should and there is a there is a place to recycle some of these plastics if they can be but i think when the environmental movement came out in those early years it was reduce reuse and if all else failed then recycle mm-hmm. and a lot of people now believe that the, that unknowingly that a lot of environmentalists were were sort of co-opted by the industry which put a lot of money toward recycling and to a lot of recycling programs and to funding nonprofits and to funding partnerships. And, and there was a lot of money to promote recycling. And who does And recycling's good. Let's all recycle. Except, as one, as one of the um, experts in our story said, except when recycling sucks all of the oxygen out of the room. Yeah. And we're no longer talking about reducing and reusing as the original environmentalists envisioned. And we're now only talking about recycling. And then it turns out with plastic, it's not even, it's not even working. So I guess 75 to million ton, million ton question is what, what do we do, Laurie, uh, Laura Sullivan? Yeah, the experts say at this point it's reduce and reuse. Yeah. We have to start embracing the idea of reducing the amount of plastic that the world uses and and reusing it whenever possible. Um and using re, you know reusable bags, using, you know, glass containers instead of instead of plastic packaging. You know, there's Things that sounded crazy a couple years ago are actually working in several communities. You know, San Francisco had a, you know, reusable plastic tubs for your takeout containers, and you can just throw them in a thing, and they wash them at night, and they give you a new one, and you can take it to your office, and you can dump it back. It's, a, it's this, the same way you reuse a propane container. You can reuse a lot of these other things. A lot of people bring their own containers to fill up the olives in the supermarket. They bring their own containers to the restaurants to say, put my ta- I just, I'll put my own takeout in here, thank you. You know, I don't want all this packaging. Um, starting to pressure companies uh, to hold to their promise. Coca-Cola and Pepsi have been saying for 30 years that they're going to add, you know, this co- recycled content or into their bottles. They have not been held to that standard. They have not met that standard. They have not been held to those standards. Um, but putting pressure on Amazon, you know, would it be so impossible to have a, in the same way people use a yellow, you know, inner office, you know, envelope, could there be a plastic envelope that you just reuse over and over again when you get your packages from Amazon rather than these plastic ones? You know, could you take the same thing to the post office and everybody's, instead of using the box once, it's something durable that you can all just reuse over and over again. Is it possible to move to a world like that? So, Laura, is it true? Your oh, I heard your next documentary is "Plagues I've Known and Loved." Is that <laughs> is that true? My next documentary is going to be called "How We're All Going to Die." Um, yeah, okay. I know, I know. Laura, it's this an unfortunate time. It really is. Yeah, too. but it was great, though. I mean, really I, I learned so film. much, and I learned that Me I had too. been taken in, and that I've been stupidly recycling all these blueberry things and all those other things for ages. I'm glad the tuna can still go in there, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Laura, thanks for joining us, and thanks for great Thank work you. Congratulations, on this. Laura. It was great. Thanks so much for having me. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Plastic Wars <laughs> is a collaboration between Frontline and NPR. You can catch watch. it tonight at 10. You are going to learn so much, even though it's a little downbeat. It's on WGBH2 or online at frontline.org. Laura Sullivan is a Frontline NPR News investigative correspondent, and is she ever a gutsy one? Thanks again to her for joining us. Coming up, just our immediate focus on the COVID-19 crisis mean we're taking our eyes off the fight to slow down climate change. Yet another cheerful subject. Heather Goldstone joins us for that conversation next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And the fight to contain the coronavirus outbreak is similar to the fight to slow down the acceleration of climate change. The narrow window to do something about it is closing so fast, it's nearly outpacing our actions to stop it. Does our urgent response to this pandemic offer us some lessons in how to fight against climate change, or has it become so all-consuming that we're losing sight of this other existential threat. Joining us online for her take on this is Heather Goldstone. Heather's the Chief Communications Officer at the Woods Hole Research Center, and she holds a Ph.D. in ocean science. Heather, it's great to talk to you, as always. Yeah, good to talk with you, Jim. Hi, Heather. So, hey, Marjorie. So, hi, Heather. So some of these stories talk about um, the coronavirus as an opportunity for climate change, and some of them say... It's going to make. It's just going to put climate change in the back burner. I mean, where do you come down? Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an opportunity. Um, I think there is a risk that we will lose sight of climate change, and I think really where we are right now is that we just we can't afford to lose sight of climate change. You know, Jim, you just said in that your your intro, right? It kind of an either or, and I think this is a, a yes and. We have yeah. to learn lessons from this. Um, it is beco- becoming all-consuming for very obvious reasons, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, but at the same time, we really can't afford to lose sight of the climate crisis because when uh, the coronavirus crisis ends, which it will at some point, we will still have a climate crisis very much with us and a lot of the choices as before um, COVID-19, um, the choices that we make today will impact um, what we're up against in 6, 12 months, 5 years, 10 years, 30 years. And so it's, it's really critical um, that we keep it in sight. And I guess the way I've kind of been thinking about it is, you know, for, for several years we've been hearing um, from climate scientists, right, that, that weather happens on the background of climate change and that therefore all weather is influenced by climate change. And I would say that really at this point, we need to think of it as everything is happening on the background of climate change. And therefore, we have to incorporate that into all of our thinking, whether that's, you know, our individual daily decisions or federal and international response to a pandemic. You know, what came clearest to me, I've thought a lot about the comparison, too, maybe not as much or as well informed, I'm sure, as you. I mean, what's the name of the guy, Weir? What's his first name from CNN? I forget. This guy did a great great piece a couple of days ago, who's the climate reporter at uh, CNN, about the parallels, you know, the lying in the beginning from administration sources, the denial, et cetera, and then getting to some of the opportunities. But it seems to me the, the major lesson I take away, which I know is not rocket science from coronavirus, that is critical to the fight against climate change, such as it is, is you need public education and public buy-in. We were reporting yesterday, reporting, we were reading from the the 
survey, the poll that was done by David Paleologos from Suffolk uh, University ran in the Boston Globe, and I'm sure you saw, Heather, that 90-plus percent of people said they supported, even if they were suffering financially, all the shutdowns, schools, restaurants, uh, you know, eating in restaurants, uh, non-essential businesses, 96 percent, I think it was, which is everybody, essentially, said they were practicing social distancing, even though the economy was shut down and a lot of them are suffering. And the, the question, I guess, for me as a layperson on this is how do people like you and others uh, convince people that this threat will maybe not quite as imminent in terms of tomorrow? Of course, others might argue otherwise. Climate change is how do we get to the point where people are willing to sacrifice certain parts of their life to make sure that we have life down the line. I mean, there is that parallel, no? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the parallels, you can walk through it from the very beginning that um, it is an existential threat that to understand uh, the full impact of what's going to happen, you have to rely on scientific modeling, you have to rely on scientific expertise, and you have to act on that in early dramatic ways. And, you know, we can talk about whether we haven't or or have seen that. Actually, there's an interesting parallel that's been drawn that um, it's some of the most climate forward governors are also the ones who took the strongest actions first against this, which maybe is not because there's some deep connection specifically between climate change and coronavirus. But I would interpret it you know, and this is not because I have specific evidence of this, but I would interpret that as those are governors who are turning to scientific expertise exactly. and feeding that expertise, yeah. right? That it's a respect for science. And so I would hope that one thing that might come out of this, because we do have um, so much public support and buy-in on this, is that maybe we can try to translate that into, okay, we'll see, this is, this is what the scientific community can offer. And projections are really powerful. We don't need to do this, you know, dismissing that's just modeling kind of thing that that we often hear about climate science. Well, that's not real science or real data. That's just, you know, projections into the future. Well, but it is. And that's what we need to understand the situations that we're in and, and drive action. And so maybe we can start to learn from this. And for that matter, maybe we can come out of this with a sense that we are capable of dramatic collective action. Um, and, and that we can use that in other ways. And, and by the way, I just want to make it really clear that I don't think anybody thinks that the kind of action that we're having to take right now to deal with coronavirus and the, you know, the real painful impacts on economy and people's livelihoods and, and incomes, that this is not the kind of action that we're talking about when we're talking about dramatic collective action to address climate change, that in fact climate action and economic health are very much tied together. And there's a serious risk in this economic downturn to progress on climate action. So we're not talking about like, we're not saying that, you know, by learning that we're capable of dramatic collective action, that everybody should stay home forever to fight climate action. I think, you know, it would look very different. Um, but but just learning that lesson that we are capable of of doing something really strong, really fast, um, in response to warnings and being resilient in the face of that. Well, I mean, we are capable. I, I, th- I think it's obvious that we are capable. We've done a lot of great things, uh, you know, not just us, but other people around the world. But, you know, the buy-in... Well, we did a great is- thing a week ago, though. I mean, I think you'd take the more immediate example, Marjorie. We spent 
Republicans who are fiscal conservatives yeah. just voted unanimously for to a bail people two point two trillion dollar package. And as I read somewhere this morning, if they can help create an infrastructure to try to end coronavirus as quickly as possible, they could ag- agree to raise money to build a low carbon infrastructure in this country. Well, they it's absolutely doable. could, but the buy-in is not there. And one of the reasons we don't have the buy-in, and this is just so heartbreaking, because I think one of the one of the upsides of this horrible tragedy that everybody's stuck inside is that the the sky is cleaner, the air is cleaner here, China, elsewhere. But then you get up this morning and you read that that President Trump, who doesn't believe in climate change and didn't believe in the coronavirus until uh, he was kind of beaten into it by the the public health people, um, is now turning back the tailpipe emissions rules that Obama put into place so that we have more pollution from cars instead of less. I mean, it just breaks your heart. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, to your point also about um, lowered emissions and and lowered air pollution right now, um, you know, I think we need to to put that into perspective that um, when we talk about in the grand scheme of emissions trends, uh, not putting as much into the atmosphere right now is, is a blip kind of in, in yes. the, the grand scheme of things, right? It's certainly not taking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. It's certainly not going to stop climate change. Um, we are not increasing the amount of carbon dioxide and, and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere as dramatically. But I think, that, you know, we need to keep that in perspective also because as we come out of this and as we feel the full economic impacts of this, there's a real risk that we could be, um, I was going to say net negative, but that would sound like there's there's less carbon dioxide. I mean, negative in terms of, of bad impacts, because, you know, just like many small businesses, um, solar installers are, are being hit with lack of, of business and major delays. Um, that, that stimulus bill that you were talking about, uh, did not, as as many renewable energy advocates had um, asked for in that, did not extend um, the renewable energy tax credits, the wind energy production tax credit, and the solar investment tax credit. So these businesses that are not building and producing wind energy, not installing solar right now, um, it's not like they'll be facing the same economic situation when we come out of this. They're going to be looking at much shorter timelines or expired tax credits, so a very different economic situation when we come out of this. Um, And so there's a a danger there that we could set back um, through the economic impacts of of this crisis the efforts for massive deployment of renewable energy and other low-carbon infrastructure, and I think we need to be very um, aware of that, you know, that that um, could offset any decrease in emissions that we're seeing right now because of this um, economic sh- slowdown in the short term. We're talking to uh, Heather Goldstone. So uh, our, our teenage uh, uh, crusader, Greta Thunberg, says we have to do both. We have to fight the climate crisis and the pandemic um, simultaneously. I don't know. I mean, how's your platform these days, Greta? Uh, Greta, not Greta, you're Heather. <laughs> Heather, how, how, how's Greta's platform? Um, you know, I think she probably doesn't have the limelight um, the way that she did, but I think she's absolutely right that we do have to try to fight both. And I think, um, you know, first of all, we need to to get rid of the false dichotomy that that there it's again that it's somehow an either or in doing that. Um, I heard someone phrase the question the other day. You know, well, why should we be thinking about 
climate change when we're trying to save lives and livelihoods right now. And it's like, well, in actual fact, when we're talking about climate action, what we are talking about is saving lives and livelihoods for years to come. Um, it, they're not opposed. It's not public health versus climate change. It's, it's all part of the same thing. And while some of the short-term decisions that we are making right now because they're the, the best options available to us, um, things like using um, uh, less reusable, you know, like I'm not allowed to use reusable bags in my grocery store anymore out of concern about the fact that that could carry, you know, droplets home, I guess, and, and spread the virus, mm -hmm. right? We're making choices. We're not using public transit as much po possibly and maybe using our own cars more. There are short-term uh, decisions that we're making that, that uh, – don't necessarily further climate action, but I think you can also look at those as, okay, well, this is a learning opportunity to look at where are the weaknesses in our infrastructure and in our system that we need to make more resilient to a range of threats and crises. And, and so let's look at those, okay, where we had to make choices that sacrificed um, climate for immediate public health, let's think about how we rework those for the next time that we're faced with some sort of crisis to make sure that it's resilient to to both um, or, or all of those. You know, the last thing here, if I can, I, you know, we were for a rare moment talking to you, Heather, we're all positive that there are lessons to be learned here, things to be done. And then you mentioned some of the things not included in the stimulus. And the, the flips, the extension of that, that notion is not only what's not in the stimulus, but are members of Congress going to be more spending averse post-coronavirus because they spent so much more than they're used to spending on this? And that's a real threat, which leads me to the you know most obvious conclusion of all is the job of you and the Bill McKibbins and the Gina McCarthy's former head of EPA who's now at Harvard, which I know you're all working on, is the American people have to be convinced of the imminence of this threat. You know, intellectually, I think we get it. Marjorie cited a couple of weeks ago polling numbers where people, voters have for the environment yeah, it's moved up. higher on their... But mm -hmm. until people believe that the threat is practically as imminent and, and arguably far greater in its magnitude than what they have responded so well to with coronavirus, the reality is we're always going to keep putting it off until the world burns. I mean, isn't that obvious? Well I mean, I think, first of all, that people are realizing that, that it's imminent, that we have seen those public opinion numbers in terms of um, acceptance of climate science and connecting the dots between what they're seeing in their daily lives in terms mm -hmm. of weather and climate impacts to the science that they've heard. Like, we're seeing those numbers increase. At, but I think the other thing you mentioned there that's really important is not just the imminence, it's the magnitude. Yeah. Um, and with coronavirus... Right, we're taking these really dramatic actions because we see the equation very clearly for what it is, that it's that we're sacrificing short term economics for human lives and also and this is I think this point has been um, made quietly, there's also an there would be an, a severe economic impact to not taking these actions, right? Because you'd have um, massive illness and uh, workers out of work because of that. And, you know, there, there's an economic uh, impact on the other side of the equation as well. And we've clearly decided um, that it is worth this economic cost to avoid those impacts. 
And I think we need to start thinking about climate change in those ways. We often hear numbers like, you know, this candidate has a $1 trillion climate change package, and we only focus on what would be spent to achieve that climate action without thinking about what's on the other side of that equation, the lives, the livelihoods, the loss in GDP um, that would come with no action on climate change. Well, you know how you and, get there? You know how you get to that realization? When governors of states hold daily press conferences like they're holding now, when the president has a climate change task force that meets and does a primetime rally every day at 545 so that the public understands. I, I agree with you and Marjorie. Intellectually, they're there. I'm not sure emotionally we're where we need to be to urge our leaders well, to take have, the action. Because you have millions of Americans who think this is, uh, exa- you know, like coronavirus, a big mm-hmm. exaggeration, yeah. and we should all calm down. And that's why you had the president thinking it's good to put more chemicals into the water and the air. I mean, it's just really incredible, I guess, that he can do this and people don't protest it. But anyway, Heather, well, thank you. You guys have the governor on your show all the time, so maybe next time you can ask him if he'll start doing climate change we will. on a regular basis. We will. Thank you, Heather. Heather, thanks for the suggestion. Thank Thanks guys. for your time. Heather All Goldstone right. is the Chief Communications Officer of the Woods Hole Research Center, and she holds a Ph.D. in ocean science. Thank you so much again, Heather. Uh, we're going to be joined in a few minutes by John King from CNN. We're going to talk to him about the, how the coronavirus outbreak is redefining the presidential race and the latest news out of Washington on the coronavirus and other things. John King is back with us in a few minutes. Listen to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Again, in a couple of seconds, we'll be joined by John King from CNN. Before we do, Andrew Cuomo has done his daily thing. And just like Governor Baker, I think it was yesterday, said the projected apex for Massachusetts in terms of the so-called surge, the infection rate, is expected to be from April 7th to 17th. Uh, Governor Cuomo said the apex is expected 14 to 30 days from now in uh, New York. He also makes a point that I think was made by Governor Baker the other day. He's talking about how on bidding against each other for ventilators and how inefficient it is. He says FEMA gets involved and FEMA starts bidding on top of the 50 states. So FEMA is driving up the price. And as Cuomo says, what sense does this make? The federal government, FEMA, should have been the purchasing agent for everything then allocated by need to the states. And they're doing more of that than they were before if the president is to be believed in terms of the ventilators. By the way, if you read the backstory, we should ask John King about this, about you know GM was allegedly balking and the president imposed the uh, Defense Production Act. GM actually, according to the reporting, was planning on how they could make this happen in the most efficient, speediest way for America. So that, too, appears to have been a, a fiction, a creation of Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't think we have an explanation, you know, about why we sent all this medical equipment off to China uh, in, in February. That Maybe was we asked a, John about that, too. Yeah, that was an odd thing because it seemed we would be thinking that we might need that medical equipment for ourselves, and we obviously do. I mean, they're still short of medical equipment um, now. We can ask them all those things. Can you imagine being on the phone call, though, with, like, the governors were on the conference call and being said, the president saying, I haven't heard anything about testing? I mean, 
what do you say? I mean, all most of all the governors are going out of their way to be respectful because they frankly need mm-hmm. Donald Trump to believe they're being appreciative enough to use his word so that the money keeps flowing. Because he basically threatened Michigan and Washington State the other day. Did you not think in that press conference when he was saying the unnamed governor of Washington and the failed presidential candidate governor of Washington yeah. State were not appreciative enough? And he says, I won't even talk to them. Pence talks to them. Mike talks to them. But the implication in that for the people of that state well, that is they, if, if your governor doesn't play yeah. nice with me and praise me in public, then you're not going to get the supplies, the ventilators, the masks, the money that you need. I mean, it is just it is it is incredible. So, yeah, it is absolutely incredible. A couple of minutes going to talk to John King from CNN about what's going on uh, out of Washington and whether the president turned around in extending these uh, deadlines and extending the social distancing because of these pretty tough uh, predictions or models uh, uh, shown to him by Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. And um, we'll just see what we'll just see what happens with that. So joining us online at this moment to go over the latest political headlines is John King, CNN's chief national correspondent. He's also anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at eight and weekdays at noon. Hello, John King. Hello to you guys. I always say happy Tuesday. It's it's somber Tuesday, but we'll get through it. Yeah, it is a somber Tuesday. And one of your colleagues, Chris Cuomo, um, sorry to hear that he is apparently, I don't know if he's tested positive for coronavirus, but he has symptoms. He's working from home. He's going to work from home. He is positive. uh, And uh, he says he's fine. He says he feels good, but uh, he's going to have to work from home for a couple weeks now. Uh, hopefully, he can, hopefully the symptoms don't get so bad that he can keep working. As we call that Cuomo prime time, for the next couple of weeks, it's going to be Cuomo's basement. Cuomo's basement. It'll still be a fine program. He'll get through it. It is just a reminder. Yeah, I don't want to make light of it because it's a reminder. Um, you know, those of us who do what we do, we are out and about more. Uh, you know, he was taking all the precautions. Um, you know, and so for those of you, there are still some people out there who think it's okay or I'm okay. Um, you know, nobody, this, you know, his brother, the governor, just said it. You know, there, this this virus does not pick between the rich and the poor, the black and the white, it, you know, everybody. It is everybody. So it's just a reminder for everybody, especially if you are someone who can't just stay at home because of your job, whether you're a delivery person or in the medical profession or, you know, in, if have, have, you have to work, uh, you got to be triple extra careful. So, John, I, I'm rarely an optimistic soul, so I'm going to try to be putting aside this insane comment the president made about not hearing about testing problems on the conference call with governors and putting aside the insane ad he did with a guy who runs my pillow where those commercials where the guy said we should go home and pray our way out of this. Essentially, it appears to me that the public health types, the Burkses and the Fauci's, are and maybe Mike Pence, I don't know, convincing the president with national guidelines that Burks is now talking about, extending the the social distancing and other kinds of rules. It appears that Trump, as close as he can, gets it. Is that overly optimistic? I think the way I would put it, Jim, is that on the policy, um, he has been uh, nudged and pushed and persuaded, and I would give Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and the vice president, um, uh, but the, particularly the – I'm not uh, dissing in any way the vice president here, but the two medical professionals here, public health professionals, who have learned how to work the president, if you will. Uh, you show him a chart that says 2 million Americans can die or 100,000 Americans can die. Uh, he likes charts. He likes big. And you ask him, which president would you like to be, sir? 
Um, and, and, you know, you talked about how you can win. You can save all these lives. Uh, and they got him to where he needs to be from a public health standpoint. Uh, so on the policy point, Jim, you're exactly right. On the policy point, uh, despite some hems and haws and some tweets and some comments and some remarks, he has landed every time they have said we need to do more or we need to do this, he has landed with the public health professionals on the policy. When he does these public appearances, uh, number one, his press events have turned into a gathering of the sycophant society. I'm sorry, uh, but he keeps calling in people. and Let me call you up to praise me. Okay, mm-hmm. now let me call you up. And remember, she did a great job praising me. You should do even better. Come on up and praise me. Um, that part of it, uh, I have no issue with saluting people in the private sector who are trying to do everything they can to help. I think that's important, actually. I think the president should be saluting the companies that are doing everything they can to sort of, you know, change the way they do business, change what they make even, and manufacture to help. Uh, but the part about how great, awesome, and wonderful he is, we, we don't need that right now. If he's great, awesome, and wonderful, we will know that in six months. Uh, and the, and, if, and if, if he is great, awesome, and wonderful, he deserves credit in six months. We don't need to do that now. Um, but he, he operates differently. So you do see his instincts and his impulses and his reflexes in these public appearances where, um, you know, but on the policy point, which is the most important point, he is siding with the public health professionals. I would just close with this. Um, I do think there's a risk in that there is a disconnect between the optimistic, happy talk of the president and his team about the supply line chain uh, and what you hear every day from governors, including yeah. yours, Charlie Baker, and yeah. others in the neighborhood. Now, now again, uh, we're having a conversation on Tuesday. When we meet next Tuesday, will it be better? Uh, you know, Maybe they're just gearing up, and maybe there is a lag time, and maybe we need to give them a little bit of grace. But this is not day one of this. This has been a recurring thing. The president and his team say one thing, and the governors and the frontline health care workers say a different one. Um, hopefully, we will get to a point where they are all on the same page about we have what we need or we're doing pretty well and here's our shortage today. You know, can you pull the fire alarm and get me what I need? You know, and okay, we're, we're good in Massachusetts, but Illinois has a problem. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, and so I do think there's a risk of a disconnect in the president having these upbeat, upbeat briefings every day saying, look at the new test kit. I have a prop here. Um, I haven't heard about it. The, the fact, he, well, I'll close here. The fact that he says, I haven't heard a complaint about testing in a long time, in weeks, that's just nuts because yeah. we know he watches a lot of television. And even if you watch, only, even if you only watch Fox News, you will see governors complaining about testing. You know, John King, I, how much of this is about the, as your headline reads on CNN, the coronavirus is, is dividing blue states from red states. That so far, the big hits uh, have predominantly been in urban areas, big cities. I know there was that terrible tragedy done in. Georgia, when that whole family was, you know, at a funeral and everybody got sick from the funeral, and there have been other cases like that. But that a lot of Trump voters are in rural areas that have, so far anyway, been spared the worst of this. Yeah, the part I'm afraid about, Marjorie, is the so far. Yeah. Um, this is coming. This is coming everywhere. You know, if we flashed back, I don't have them in front of me, but to the graphics I was using on my show a week ago versus now which, you know, how many states don't have any cases, how many states don't have any deaths, how many counties don't have any cases. Uh, Those numbers are changing by the hour, if not by the day. And so let let us all hope and, you know, pray um, that, no, that, you know, North Dakota does not become like New York. I mean, I mean, on a per capita basis. Um, Let's all hope, hope and let's hope that even states that were maybe late to realize this, maybe, you know, look, it's just a fact that the president for the first couple of months was downplaying this. So were a lot of people. But the, you know, if, you, if you only listen to the president, if you get your cues politically from the president, or if you're a red state governor saying, well, until the president starts to suggest this, I can't do anything. I can't politically do anything. Um, 
You know, now, you just, to, just today, the governor of Tennessee issued a stay-at-home, stay-safer-at-home, they call it, uh, advisory in his state. Uh, I would just you know, urge anyone, go online, look at Kentucky, a red state but with a newly elected Democratic governor. Look at the arc of cases there, and look at the arc of cases next door in a very similar state, neighboring Tennessee. When it came into Kentucky, the Democratic governor, his first case, declared a state of emergency. Very quickly after that, started putting in restrictions and has escalated them. And they have a much lower caseload, and it appears they've, they're at the point where they're, they may already be, or within days, flattening the curve, easing the, the rush on their health care system. Uh, it works. The social distancing works. We're just starting to see the inklings of it. Uh, but uh, hopefully a week from now, we will say, look, the arc in Kentucky has changed. Look, even in New York, still a huge number of cases, but it's starting to bend in the right direction. There's no question from the experts that the social distancing works. And to your point, I, I do think that the states that have been slower to act do tend to be the red states and the more rural states. And, and so, some of that is, you know, these are states that are less skeptical, uh, skeptical of government involvement, of government edicts, mm -hmm. of government orders. So we, we can't just overgeneralize it. Um, but I do worry, and this is not me, it's not John King worrying, this is what the, the data people and the public health experts watching this, that yes, it makes perfect sense that your biggest cases are in high-density urban areas. Uh, but it's coming to everywhere, and anyone who thinks they can escape it because they live in a small town is just wrong. You know, John King, we've listened to everybody from Andrew Cuomo to Charlie Baker to individuals to small businesses saying, it's good that Congress did uh, $2.2 trillion, the biggest stimulus of its kind ever here, but it's simply not enough. Elizabeth, we spoke to Elizabeth Warren yesterday, and we asked her if she was confident there would be another major stimulus package out of Congress that would be signed by the president. Her answer was, I hope there will be. Will there be? I assume there will be something. I, I think uh, we'd be crazy to try on this day to say what will it be. Um, the president himself has said he believes aid to the states should be part of the next package because when he talks to governors, they talk to him about how they're just getting wiped out because they have no tax revenues coming in. Not only are they spending enormous amounts of money um, to surge whatever they can in, their health, you know, in the health system and to combat this, um, but they don't have any revenues coming in because – government is shut down. People aren't working. So, you know, not only are businesses not paying business taxes, but individuals, you know, aren't making income uh, because they're, they're shut down and a lot of them are being laid off. So that's part of it. Um, I think if you look at the new Goldman Sachs estimate today, if you look at the consumer confidence numbers today, uh, the economic hit could be 15 percent or higher unemployment through the summer. Um, and so, well, the stimulus plan is designed for three months, really. So I think they're probably going to have to come back. If you just build a list of likely weaknesses, likely holes, likely flashing lights, aid to the states, uh, more unemployment. And then, but, I will add the but here, there are a number of conservatives in the House who at least don't want to think about it now. I don't want to say they're opposed to doing anything. That, that's probably not fair. But they say, let's wait, which, okay, as long as you're thinking about what you might have to do, I have no problem with anyone who says, let's just wait. We don't, need to, we don't need to write the bill tomorrow because we have this stimulus plan in the system for the next three months. The question is, will they be open-minded, number one, if you get there? Um, and number two, you already see some differences. You know, the Democrats say we want to do some policy things that, as a progressive, you might say, I can connect those dots to COVID-19. And as a conservative, you will say that has nothing to do with this crisis. It's family medical leave. It's other things. You know, it's other Democratic policy priorities that predated this 
And again, there will be people who make a passionate case and a logical case that connects them to the crisis and why they're needed. Uh, but you're going to have some Republicans saying, sorry, you know, no. And then the flip side, Republicans will come up with some, you know, will want to do some things on the taxes front um, that the Democrats don't like. So there's going to be some policy and partisan disagreements when there is a phase four. There will be a phase four conversation. Um, the question is, on this last time, phase three, there were a lot of policy disagreements, too, and they pretty quickly worked them out. Uh, will that spirit continue? That's what I don't know. So, John King, um, let's talk for a minute about the coronavirus and the election that we have kind of forgotten about. You know, w- what's going to happen to these primaries? What's even looking f- to the summer of the conventions? Do we know anything yet? We don't. Well, we, the one thing we do know is that the, most of the primaries are being delayed. I think Wisconsin still plans to hold its primary, which is coming up pretty quickly, or at least as of today. I may have that, I may have that wrong if it happened in the last several hours anyway, because I was up on television. But um, there are a couple states that have not moved theirs yet. Um, but most have pushed them. Um, most of the ones that were supposed to be in late March, early April have pushed them to June. Uh, and so, you know, Joe Biden is the overwhelming, you know, mathematically probable Democratic candidate. However, uh, he does not have the delegate math yet, and now he cannot get it uh, until June. Uh, and so what does that do, number one, just in the Democratic race? And you're beginning to see, and I don't want to over-magnify this, but you're beginning to see you know, liberals who don't like Joe Biden saying, wow, look what has happened here. Now you've pushed all these other primaries together into one giant. You know, the Joe Biden thing was he won, he won South Carolina, then he won Super Tuesday, then he won the second Super Tuesday, then he won the third Super Tuesday. Ohio pulled out of that one, but he still won three out of the four. And it was state by state. He was building on his math toward inevitability. Now you have some people saying, whoa, so almost all of the remaining delegates could be settled on one or two days in June. And so Bernie should stay in. Senator Sanders should stay in the race because, you know, if you can change the arc, if Biden makes some mistake, um, there's still a, there's a, you know, there's a one night giant opportunity if you have a sweep. Um, so that so the Democratic race is going to continue. You're not going to see it because nobody can campaign. Um, you know, but you can see it virtually. You can see it in your emails. You can see it in the complaints the liberals still make about Biden. And you can see it in the, the things the Biden campaign is trying to make this about Trump and about leadership and coronavirus. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I was talking to a state representative in Milwaukee the other day. That's where the Democratic convention is. I was talking to him because he's just recovering from coronavirus. Um, and he was saying that, you know, they still hope to have the convention, but they don't know. I think a lot of these things, you know, those are the July and August conversations. And I don't think we're really going to know until we get through May. How much frustration is there in Biden camp about his inability to get through? I watched uh, your colleague Anderson Cooper's, you know, virtual town hall, not no audience, and they were in separate places. Biden was in his home in Delaware, and I assume Cooper was in New York City, but I don't recall. And I thought Biden had some interesting things to say in a very tough spot. And the next day, if you didn't watch that hour, the only coverage was the beautiful story he told about he and his wife sitting on their back porch when the grandchildren were brought by every day so that, you know, with appropriate social distancing, they could communicate with them and tell them stories. And I, I thought it was beautiful, but didn't it was a human story, which is what Biden's best at, and not a policy one, which I assumed he wanted to get out. Are they going nuts over there? Or are they acknowledging this is just an impossible time where he's just not going to get the play that the likely Democratic nominee gets? Well, it's kind of both. I, I wouldn't use the term nuts, but sure, they're frustrated. They're frustrated. They, a, a, they, you know, they want to clinch. 
mathematically. Uh, B, they want to have you know they want to have a dialogue about leadership, and you know nobody wants this pandemic, but they do. They they believe, and I, again, if you're a Trump supporter, you'll disagree, uh, but they believe it's an opportunity to talk about his you know his experience in government, his knowing every lever of the government, knowing what to do at a moment of crisis. That that'll be a part of the debate when it resumes as a full-time debate, and it eventually will. That will be a big part of the debate. But there's no question they're frustrated. Uh, but I also you know. I also think, Jim, let's just be honest. I mean, my show is called Inside Politics. I have been the one that that the Biden stuff, except for the personal story, was not in my show the day after either, Um, because I think we have to think, you know, what does America want right now? Mm -hmm. And I think America wants to know, um, A, what what am I supposed to do? B, am I am I supposed to wear a mask? Uh, What's the truth about testing? What's the truth about ventilators? Um, Why is my state behind New York or ahead of New York in terms of the the rate of growth of cases. What's happening to the economy? My kid is now learning at home. Uh, how are we going to deal with that? Uh, I, I for, forgive me, but you know, and please disagree with me if you guys think I'm wrong, because I love to get, to get the tires kicked. I just think there are a lot more important things in the lives of everyday Americans right now than politics, um, and so it's hard. And I, so I would understand if you're the Biden campaign how you are frustrated, uh, and hopefully, as we get, we're you know, we're about to move from March into April. Hopefully, this stabilizes, and we have time for quote unquote other news, um, and that's other important, very, very, very important news. Um, I think we do need to talk about our election, the safety of those elections, the timing of those elections, whether it's time to you know, amp up mail-in voting or other different kinds of voting so people don't have to be so close to each other. I, I, John King's opinion is, as an anchor of a program, is that day is not today. I hope it comes soon, but it is not today. You know, John, one last thing from – well, actually, two last things from me. You just said one of the questions you address is whether or not we should wear masks. Apparently, Dr. Fauci is on the – on the fence about this. Do we know what the recommendations are about to be or will they change from the coronavirus task force or no? The Surgeon General said today that he does not see the data that supports changing them right now. But he also said, if it makes you more comfortable to wear one and you have one, wear one. I do think, I just had a doctor on my program, an infectious disease expert, and she made an excellent point. She said, we need to be careful when we talk about things not to confuse issues. Um, You know, if you want to wear, if you either make your own cloth mask or you have access to a surgical type mask, you know, a very light material, and you feel more comfortable wearing that, the Surgeon General says, go ahead and do that. That is very different from the you know, the protective N95 and other much more high-tech, much more safe um, surgical masks or medical equipment masks that first responders need, you do not, if you're walking to the corner grocery store, need one of those or need to be trying to buy one of those on the Internet and take them away from a hospital worker. You just don't. Uh, but if, you know, I do think the, the question is, some people, you know, where do they get? The, the Surgeon General says the data is not there today to support that every American, when you go outdoors, or even if you're in your house with family members, should wear a mask. Will they change that guidance as they continue to learn every day more about yeah. this? Maybe. Uh, there are certainly some people pushing them to do that, but that's one of the things we're going to have to follow every day. One last thing from me, uh, John. I, I got a, a couple of emails, actually three, in the last several days. Uh, two of them were from big-time Democrats who can't stand Trump, so I, I wouldn't say I discounted them, but I counted them less. One from was from a prominent Democrat who is not a Trump basher, and they all three were raising the same issue. Concern, which I have not heard much of, that what the real game plan here is for Donald Trump is uh, not to have an election in uh, early November. Are people, any people in power in Washington concerned about this, or is this just conspiratorial thinking? 
Well, you hear it from Democrats sometimes that, you know, their worry is that he is going to um, say, you know, it's a time for extraordinary actions and we need to delay or do this. I have not heard that from anybody seriously, so I don't want to give it too okay. much fodder. You, just, just like you, you get incoming from people who don't like him and don't trust him. Not all of it is from people who are viscerally distrustful of him. Um, the president does not have the power, at least no power that I know of, to cancel a presidential election. The founders were pretty clear about that. Uh, and so uh, my life and my expectation is less politics now because that's not the most important thing in the world right now. There's a pandemic happening. Uh, but at some point, um, we will turn a corner here. And, you know, I think um, hopefully, hopefully we get back in, in, in August, September, and October to good old-time politics. As we continue to deal with this, school years, you're going to have another school year starting. Yep. You're going to have probably a seasonal rise again. But hopefully we know a lot more about it by then and we're smarter about it and we're more prepared. And so that, you know, it's a problem but not what we have today, and we can get back to politics. But, you know, do I always have to look at the calendar and remember when the election is? Uh, yeah, I'll do that, I promise. <laughs> John, it's a pleasure. Well, I guess it is a pleasure. We love talking to you. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, John King. Thank you very much, John. Everybody stay safe. Thank you, you too. You, you too. too. John King joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 8 and weekdays at noon. We watch it every day. Thanks again, John. Up next... Let the games begin next summer. The Olympics have officially been rescheduled. Sports Authority Trenny Kuznarek joins us for that and more. You listen to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And join us on the line to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of sports and society and coronavirus. This is BPR contributor Trenny Kuznarek. Trenny's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Hello there, Trenny. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello, Trenny. So no Tokyo Olympics this summer, next summer. What does this mean for everyone involved? Well, we knew last week that they were going to reschedule the Olympics. We just didn't have an exact date. So now we do. They're going to take place July 23rd through August 8th, 2021. Um, And what it means is that this Olympic cycle, which is typically four years for athletes, is now going to be five. Um, And right now, um, you know, part of the reason that, you know, that the Olympics had to be moved, one, we just don't know what the containment worldwide um, of, of the coronavirus will look like this July um, as the Southern Hemisphere moves into their uh, fall and winter months. Um, but also, um, you know, athletes who have been training um, and are trained specifically to peak at a certain time, that, that training was disrupted um, because countries around the world were shutting down. You're not able to go to a gym. You're not able to work out with a team. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing is that their, their entire training cycle now is pushed to another year and it's going to be interesting to see how certain athletes have to fine tune what they're doing to sort of repeat at that, at that time. But also I think a lot of people forget this because the athletes that you know of are the Michael Phelps and Simone Biles of the world. And, you know, even on the tennis circuit, you know, like Serena and Venus Williams and, and people who are making millions of dollars a year of a year, either professionally or in endorsements, many of these athletes who are training, um, you know, put off starting careers and jobs and continuing education in school, specifically to do this within four years. So finances are a huge um, hurdle for them. So it'll be interesting to see how many of them deal with that aspect of this delay. 
We're talking to Trenny uh, Kuznerik. Another event that was pushed off closer, near and dearer to the hearts, obviously, of most people listening to the show is the Boston Marathon. John Powers, who's covered sports for a long time, Olympics and marathons, writes that one of the interesting things is with all the a ton of these important marathons around the world being being postponed there is to the fall i think he says five of the six world marathon majors are slated to take place within a period of seven weeks so obviously most mere mortals what's the name of that i can't think of it is have you ever met the young woman from belmont who ran seven marathons on seven continents Oh, yes. I have it. Her name's escaping me. Yes, she is, is fabulous. Me, yes, fabulous woman. Happened. And she broke the world record or whatever, of course, just running right. them and getting to those places. But what does that mean? Obviously, world-class marathoners are not going to run that five in six weeks or seven weeks, whatever. What does that mean for Boston? Well, interestingly, Jim, it actually might mean a small boon. And they've actually gotten a couple of elite athletes who um, prior were not going to participate because of the Olympics, right? Oh, yeah. so the, the Olympic marathon would have been in July. Many of the um, the qualifiers were this winter, and the only person that was going to double dip in all of those was Desiree Linden, who, of course, won in 2018, mm-hmm. won the Boston Marathon, first woman to win since the 80s. Um, but now you're seeing a couple of different elites who otherwise would not have competed in, in the Boston Marathon um, now putting their name there. Now, where it does change things is, yeah, you're going to have um, – most of the elites have already um, committed. So there might be, though, an uptick in, in athletes who say, you know what, I'm not running in July in Tokyo anymore, so I'll run in September in Boston or November in New York or October in Chicago – but you're also now having those elites, they, they are able to choose between Boston, London, Berlin, uh, Chicago, and New York. Those are the five of the six majors that will take place within seven weeks of each other. So the field is going to be a little bit thinner probably in all of those races. But Boston being the first one, you know, might get some, some names that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten because of the timing of the um, original race in April and its lead up to the Olympics. You know, maybe you touched on this either a couple of minutes ago or last week, and my apologies if you did, in terms of Olympic qualifying. So is I think I read or heard from you or somebody that those who have already qualified for, let's pick the marathon, will continue to be qualified and eligible. Is that right for the 2021 Olympics? That is, that is what I've read thus far. Um, now, whether or not something in there changes, as, as you know, as we know things continue to develop, um, I would say, Jim, the, the biggest change might be that someone, you know, especially in a sport like running, gets injured. Um, so maybe, you know, you'll see the fourth or fifth place. Like Des Linden came in fourth in the Women's Marathon uh, Olympic Trials. So she's the alternate for the team behind the three women who came uh-huh. in first, second, and third. Um, so that might be something. But, yes, right now I've, they are allowing people who have already done their qualifiers um, that that will stand for 2020, 2021. And, 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 by the way, I surely, by the question I'm about to follow up with, I surely don't want people who played by the rules to be penalized. So keep that in mind. The three people who had the best times uh, may not be the three people with the best times come summer of 2021. And obviously the goal of most Olympic committees is not to care about their athletes, but to bring home gold medals to their country. Let's face it. 
So are things like the USOC going to say, we want to make sure that those three women, just to pick that one sport, are as much at the top in 2021 as they were in 20? You know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, Jim, and I can only speak to running because it's the sport that I genuinely understand the most in Uh terms of peaking and, and valuing. Um, you know, I would think that if you're an Olympic level runner and you're an elite athlete, you're not going to lose so much time on your, you know, per mile pace over the next year. If anything, you might get better. You might get stronger. This forced rest period on you is going to allow a lot of these distance runners and, you know, also to parallel it to track and field, which had not had their qualifiers yet. You know, it's going to give you a chance maybe to, to allow some nagging injuries to heal. Um, so you, you know, you really don't, it's not like anyone who was training for a marathon this fall, this spring that has now been pushed to the fall, or if you qualified for the Olympics that you were going to run in July, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, you're running a five minute and 20 second mile now, and a year from now, you're going to run a six twenty. If anything, you may be better trained to be able to run a five eighteen per mile pace. Yeah, but there are other, um, but so Trenny, there are other, there are other Olympic sports like women's gymnastics where the shelf life is really, that is, that's really short. That one hasn't had but that one hasn't had their trials oh it hasn't so that, oh. I, that no so there are very very few sports that have had their trials so right i mean if you're simone biles you know that you know you're one year older and your body is different so i think it's something like that they would maybe have to yeah. but the u.s olympic um trials for gymnastics are usually fairly and i don't know the exact date but they're usually fairly close to the start of the olympics so that again it coincides with sort of their peak um, what they're aiming for. So a lot of those sports where age is really more of a factor, it, that's, those, those trials haven't even taken place yet. You know, Trini Kuznarek, I know we talked at the beginning of this uh, coronavirus disaster about teams playing without audiences. You know, that for a while that was the March Madness would go on without audience, the basketball team and stuff. Before I ask you about this big three playing their quarantine reality show, at some point, if we do have enough tests, and you could test everybody on the Red Sox or everybody on another team um, to make sure no one had the coronavirus, th- th- they could play without an audience. At least somebody have something oh, to watch sure. on TV. So, do you, I mean, it would certainly be weird, right? Be weird. I mean, It'd be very weird. Yep. But I, I mean, yeah, I think that's that is definitely something that the NBA and NHL and probably even Major League Baseball they've been a little less per usual NBA has been, I think, most transparent about their thought process here. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's something that leagues are considering. Okay. If we get enough testing, like I just heard on NPR this morning, that there is a company that is now fast-tracked a fast test, right, where you can have have the results quickly. If we get to that point – but honestly, if we get to that point and we can have a better grasp on who this from everything I'm listening to, I just listened to John King and, you know, the doctors who have talked that the, the goal is that we're able to quickly test people, isolate smaller groups and quarantine smaller groups of people so that the entire nation doesn't have to shut down. And if that happens, you might be able to even have fans in the stands. But I would guess they'll be overly precautious to start. And it would not surprise me, Marjorie. Lots of people don't know this, but sometimes when people call sporting events, the play-by-play and color analysts are watching it on a monitor, sometimes clear across the world. So you really don't need that many bodies in a building to put together a high-quality television broadcast. 
you know, you could have a couple of your set cameras. We'll use basketball as a as the example. You know, you might have your two in the ends where both baskets are. You probably have definitely have two set cameras at center court. You might have two more in the corners of the building and you can zoom in very close. You're not going to get the same sort of up close shots that some of those floor cameras get, but you're going to be able to put together a production that is, that is fairly high. You won't have reporters there. They could maybe do conference calls afterwards so that you wouldn't have journalists and too many media members in the building. You could really limit it to staff, trainers, coaches, players, officials, and a couple of camera guys. You know, okay. you know. I usually often say to you, Trina, you're too young to remember this. This is one of these stories where even I am too young to remember this. When you talked <laughs> about remote broadcasting, do you two know how, I'm pretty sure I'm right, I'm sure I'll get email correcting me, how Ronald Reagan started his public career? He would was broadcast, he, he was an announcer yeah. on baseball games, but he was not only at the park, obviously it was pre-television, so he wasn't even watching the game. What would come through is the description of the plays on the wire. And not only would he then, after the fact, as if it were live, describe the play, he had sound effects for the bat hitting the oh. ball and all. I'm, <laughs> wow. I'm quite sure that I am pretty close to right there. And again, if someone corrects me, I'll do it tomorrow. In any okay, case, we don't have time to talk about the big three in their quarantine reality show because I want to ask you about... Marble racing that apparently is is getting hot now and the, the marble okay. racing. <laughs> have neither of you watched the marble racing? No, no. I have not. I don't so know what it is. I swear to God. So they take so the first one I watched came out weeks ago, like when this whole self isolation, you know, everybody started working from home when it first happened, like two or two and a half weeks ago. And this guy put it was you know not I wouldn't say super high tech video quality, but it was a race between like eight different marbles, and he had names for each of the colors, and he he did play by play. And I I'm not gonna lie, guys, it was like two minutes and fifty seconds, but I was riveted. I was like, oh come gosh. on, yellow, you know, <laughs> yellow for the win, and the. The courses take these twists and turns so that you're that, and there's like some offshoots of them and like little little molehills that the, the marbles can jump over. So it's not like whoever's in the lead to start is there the entire duration. And actually, guys, if you're looking for a little competitive something, you know, competitive to watch on YouTube or on the television, marble racing is where it's at. It's where it's at. It's taking off because there is no other live sports happening except for Belarusian, uh, I believe, soccer is still happening. <laughs> Okay. So, Marjorie, how's the, here's the you watch the marble racing and you tell me how it was, okay? okay? <laughs> I mean, I trust you, Trenny. Don't, don't, don't knock it till you try it. That's don't a fine point. It Trenny, it's great to talk okay. to you as always. Thanks so much. You Trenny, we'll talk to you next week. thank you very much. The, uh, BPR contributor Trenny Kuznarit joins us every week. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Thanks again for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to have our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, and we're also going to talk to Dr. Darrow. You know Dr. Darrow, Jim? Our crew, we'd like to thank Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John Fuclaw Parker. What's on television, Jim? A couple things. I'm sure everybody has read about these horrible deaths, 11 veterans dead at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home. Five of them at least confirmed COVID-19. There was a huge delay in reporting. Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse is going to join me. Then a former player in the NFL, Tennessee Titan Safety, and then he went on to be a Rhodes Scholar. Now he's a neurosurgeon at MGH. Dr. Myron Roll is going to join me talking about the lessons from the field, I guess a number of fields. 
and John Santiago, who is both an ER doc at Boston Medical Center and a state rep, quite a combo, is going to update us. He's been joining us almost every week to talk about the progression both of the virus, how healthcare professionals are doing in the field. And so Dr. Santiago is going to give us another update tonight at 7 o'clock on Greater Boston. That sounds excellent. Mm. Okay. Do you like talking to Alan Alda today, by the way? How exciting it was, a big was that? Thrill. It, was it was a, a big huge thrill. thrill talking to Alan Alda. And, you know, that marriage story, which I thought was going to be so depressing because it was about divorce, I mean, it was kind Great. of depressing, but it was really good, and he is so good in it. You know, he just, he's And just, he's got the podcast clear and vivid, and today's yes, podcast that dropped is with the great Cy Montgomery, who you know how we feel. And the Frontline documentary tonight, we talked to Laura Sullivan, too. Oh, my God. About the plastic wars. It's going to change the way you I think operate it will. in your I home think it will. in terms of recycling, because you're recycling things that no one is actually recycling. You're filling up those blue bins with stuff that's just winding up in Indonesia. So tomorrow we may have some good news. Not today, <laughs> but on anything. <laughs> but maybe tomorrow. I'm Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. Have a wonderful afternoon and stay safe. <laughs>